Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on Kicking Kicking and and Streaming! Okay, uh... Sorry, what? Yeah, let's do that again. I don't think I heard you. And maybe if you can... Well, I thought we agreed we were going to come in strong on this one. Yeah, strong is right. But, you know, bring it in from your diaphragm. Diaphragm. Lower your register and you don't need to bellow. Listen, I don't know how you bellow, but where I come from, we really put our backs into it. Okay, all this and more on Kicking and Streaming. Chris? (sighs) Kicking and Streaming. Okay. Hello, Chris. Hello, Bo. Uh, here we are at the at the top of another episode. And you know, Chris, I've been thinking, uh, our our intro, I mean, I, I believe this is apparent. I think our audience is savvy enough to understand that we aren't having that intro argument every time. No. And uh, we've been talking about how we, we do need to record it now that... Uh, your mic quality has improved. We need to do it again. That's true. Well, I could have that argument with you any day of the week, so I'm. we'll need to get around to that at some point. We could argue about whether we have to record it, really. If it's already happened by this episode, then this will have been cut out, and you won't be hearing it. If you are hearing it, that means that soon <laughs> we're going to have an updated argument. You're going you're gonna to hear us at the beginning, but... Chris will sound, you know, marginally better, as better as he's capable of sounding. I sound, I, w- I will sound as better as a person can sound. And you know what? I'm going to keep this in anyway, just for just for pros- prosperity, pros- posterity. Listen, Bo, the people deserve to know how the sausage is made. I let let let's hope it's good for prosperity and posterity. Yeah, whichever one happens first. Listen. Bo, I'm ready to to get talking about some flicks here. We uh, we're doing things a bit differently this time, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Uh. And the the way that the the, dif, the differently <laughs> the differently is that we're opening with our Criterion film this time. What? So we're opening with we're opening with my pick. And when I say my pick, I don't mean my pick. What I mean is that we've brought on a guest, a special guest, who's going to be here with us through the episode, and it's going to be it's going to be his pick. So the guest who we brought on is the content creator, the YouTube critic. Uh, that doesn't sound... He's not a critic of YouTube, is he? He's a movie critic on YouTube. <laughs> well, we could ask. Listen, I'm just going to bring him in. Uh, and his name is, uh, when I say it, E. Licorice. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, E. Licorice. I was just loving the intro that uh, YouTube critic, I think, is going... I'm that I'm going to put that in my bio from now yeah. on. <laughs> you're going to have to change right. the content well, of your channel so that you're, you're now critiquing YouTube instead of film. Yeah, I hope my subscribers are okay with that. <laughs> Sorry we did that to you. you. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for a pivot. Well, uh, Licorice, would you like to... I guess I, I've got a little, a little intro here prepared for it, but uh, the film you picked was The Inheritance, correct? Yep. By Masaki Kobayashi. I mean, I, I'm verifying now. I hope that's okay. I just spent like a week watching and <laughs> taking notes. Yeah. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was a fascinating pick. Thank you for for choosing that one. If you guys like, I'll just jump in real quick and and 
catch our audience up to speed on what this film is about, and we could just we could just get into it, as Philip DeFranco says. We can just let's just get right into it. <laughs> hey, let's All have right. him as a guest, Bo. Let's get Philip DeFranco on here. He knows his stuff. All right, listen. Let's have that intro. What intro? I'm ready to listen. Right. The inheritance. <laughs> okay, so this film, it's a Japanese film from 19 oh goodness i wrote i forgot to write down the date 1962 yep that's right look at that look at my brain 1962 a 1962 japanese film about an exorbitantly wealthy business executive fella who discovers that he has cancer and he is not long for this world so the the driving force of the story is he summons his associates and he tasks them with locating what he believes are his three illegitimate children so that he may include them in his will to receive his inheritance almost immediately after this meeting the whole bunch of them begin conspiring and taking measures to lie cheat and betray their way into securing the money for themselves so what follows over the course of its roughly one hour 40 minute runtime is a twisted gnarled story of greed deceit and even murder as each character from this executive's uh, lawyer to his wife to his secretary all go about their sneaky malicious schemes uh, probably safe to say this is not necessarily an uplifting film, but I had a heck of a time watching it. Elikrish, if you don't mind my asking, what what made you want to pick this film as uh, as the one you'd like to discuss on the on the podcast? I mean, honestly, that's that's probably the toughest answer, uh, <laughs> the toughest question that I'm gonna have to answer today because, <laughs> like, you can ask Bo from like the very first email when I replied, I was like, this one just jumped out at you know just uh, jumped out at me, and the reason is because uh-huh. I think. Like, Masaki Kobayashi, who's the director of this film, is, like, one of the greatest Japanese directors ever. Mm. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about him, I'm sure, a bit later. But, like, this film is, it just, like, sits there in the middle of his filmography. And it's usually overshadowed by the titans that, like, came before it and, and came after it. And, you know, it's not a lot of people talk about this film and I really like this film. So I was excited to just like get a chance to talk about it, you know? Yeah. I was, I was surprised uh, after I had seen it the first time going about trying to do my, uh, my little internet sleuthing for it. it. It's really hard to find chatter about it on the, on the webosphere. Not, I, I, yeah, I was kind of blown away by that. Even uh, one of the, one of the recent films we critiqued was the chimes. It was chimes at midnight by Orson Welles. And that's a similar one where I think it's a fantastic film that kind of gets, lost in the sea of classics on either side of it. But even that one has a bit of chatter about it online. So that was, that, that surprised me after watching it that, yeah, not a lot of people talk about it. Yeah, the, this one, is, this one is tricky. It does have, you know, it's in the Criterion collection. So it has a Criterion release, but not a full and, and proper release. Not yet. You know, it's, right. it's sort of in a, call it a filmography disc box set of uh, other works. Mm. So yeah, kind of, kind of swallowed up. Um, not even the usual like Criterion essay to to run off of or mm-hmm. or anything like that. So. Yeah, that that's actually like a really the really good point. It's part of the eclipse of like all of his earlier films, and it's the only one that's part of like the second decade of his career because it's just an outlier. Whereas all the other films from the '60s get their own releases with the essays and the you know supplementary material. Hmm. This one's just kind of. So I'm excited to get into it. Time to give it its day in the sun. So we're uh, we're introduced right, right at the start to the character of Yasuko. Yeah, is that how you pronounce it? Yasuko. They they kind of 
I don't want to butcher it with my terrible. I know I'm gonna have such trouble with these Japanese names. Yeah. 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 That that, that was actually my fear as well, which is we're we're probably gonna end up <laughs> um, just going like you know the the director or the secretary or like the lawyer. I feel like we're gonna end up <laughs> great. <laughs> well, I guess we'll get that out of the way right up top. That's a, that was a triple apology, a triple <laughs> preemptive apology for yeah for butchering these names. We, uh, yeah, it's just it's not in my skill set. So we'll give it a shot, but we'll we stand yeah. exonerated of all of our mispronunciations. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm gonna get a chance to mispronounce a bunch of director names and writer names and composer names in a bit. <laughs> the characters are a bit hard. Like you can't even find the name of the characters on IMDb. That's how low key this film tends to be. I so. know. Yeah. And this is a problem I have. So they don't even say each other's names super often in the first half. I think they, they start to pick up and it's an ensemble film, which mm-hmm. I think is one of, it's one of the better uses of an ensemble cast that I've seen. It was, it almost felt kind of like a more intelligent and malicious version of, you know, something like Ocean's Eleven, where you've got this kind of team, except they're all at odds with each other, but there's lots of organizing and putting things together and uh, stringing together this little plot. But uh, at the very, very start, we, we see Yasuko in the, in the apparent future, living a life of luxury, kind of admiring things and windows. And to me, she seemed almost like the goddess of vanity. She was she was like the, the perfect embodiment of just being so kind of swept up in her own wealth and comfort. Yeah, living her best life. That that was the literally the, the note I wrote as soon as the film started. She's just living her best life. <laughs> yes. Like it's so clear. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost, I mean, we open up the, the camera is really smooth through most of this movie. But at the beginning, we've got kind of a, the jittery handheld cameras were following her around in the street and it's it's kind of very uh, paparazzi mm-hmm. like she seemed you know it's we got the jazz music playing mm. uh, she's dressed to the nines it's it's sort of a chic 60s swinging kind of a look and yeah we get the idea that we're following like a movie star around sort of yeah 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 and uh, her mood quickly changes when she bumps into a guy who at first obviously we don't know who he is but she seems to recognize him and with she almost looks at them the same way that you that a wealthy person would look at kind of a, a a dirty beggar who would come up and ask if they've got a dollar to spend for a bus for bus fare kind of thing you know where she she yeah she just seems kind of disgusted at him and she doesn't do a very good job hiding it but he's just all grins mm-hmm. um which i you know he they they meet for lunch and talk but i i thought it was really interesting when they first meet for lunch we see him talking and kind of relaxing and enjoying his lunch and we just see her face like she smells a dead animal as we hear her inner monologue just how disgusting this guy is and how much she hated her old life and that kind of sets the stage for a lot of what happens in the film i think um so we kind of as she's remembering we sort of fade back to the life that she knew we we find out how she got to this situation how she knows this guy and and how she got so wealthy because she talks about her disgusting apartment. What what did she call it? She said like it was like the the smell of flesh in her apartment was just right. Yeah, sounds almost like her her life of poverty was this eldritch horror that was just this indescribable nightmare of existence. Right, and and she constantly like highlights in the beginning because there is this transition where she goes from wearing this super chic, you know, like her clothes are super chic and she looks really good and etc. And then it transitions to where she's like following the director of the company and she's talking about how she was clearly struggling for money and barely had enough money to get by on a month-to-month basis and that's sort of the point at which like the story really kicks in where we start you know figuring out uh with the director and what i really like about this framing device is just that 
like you almost forget it's there. I mean, there's you know, there's the voiceover that comes in throughout the film, mm-hmm. but like when you get into the plot and you know, everyone's trying to vie for this, like the inheritance and, and you don't know what's going to happen, how it's going to happen. It's only at the very end when things start to line up, you know, which I'm sure we'll talk about. That's when you're like, oh, right, right, right. Okay. This all makes sense. It's, it, it, I feel like that's such a perfect encapsulation of the film where it's like, yeah, you just have all these wild strands and then things just sort of line up slowly by the end and then everything makes sense. It almost feels like the director sort of discovered this perfect ending and then just slowly walked it backwards when he was writing it because it, it, it does all kind of slowly drift into this perfect shape at the end. It's kind of it's kind of cool to watch this almost disorganized story start to slowly kind of you realize, "Oh, this is going to be this." And yeah, I'm excited to talk about the finale because that was a fun ending. I mean, fun being the operative word, I guess. "Quote unquote fun." <laughs> right. An exciting watch. Yeah, and just for a quick pedantic note, you said the director as he was writing it, and I knew what you meant, but I just want to put in that this does have a, a separate writer, oh, and it is yeah. based on a novel. Novel, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. It's way off. Um, I don't know if the novel is of the same name. Right, it was written by Koichi Inagaki. Hmm. And uh, sh- should we just like get into talking about details about the sto- story? I guess you know our the listeners will know that there are going to be a ton of spoilers as we just. Get into like the meat of it. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, that's always going to be a given. Warning. So let's just let's just go in. Yeah. Yeah, especially with stories with a lot of intrigue. That's a heads up to everybody. There's there's, this is almost a mystery movie. So yeah, be warned. So the the you, you were talking about how bleak this film is, and I think that's such a perfect like sort of segue into like these characters mm-hmm. because there is a point at some point halfway through the film where you just have to sit back and go like, is there any redeemable character? <laughs> in this film like every single one of them is just the worst version of of themselves basically and because in the beginning you're sort of when when he finds out that he has cancer and that he's sort of figuring things out it has this almost like solemn tone and you know everyone's you know it's 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 a big thing Mm -hmm. to find out that you might not have six months to live six months a year uh you know at the best and then he talks to them about, you know, finding his illegitimate children. Mm-hmm. And in the very next scene, all these people who he was confiding in, all these people who he was, you know, uh, even even his wife, his young wife, who we just met in that scene or, or maybe in the scene just prior, in the very next scene, they're just in their own little rooms, in their own little areas, already deciding yeah. how to do it. And I don't know what else to say about these characters, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It, it really is a... A spider's web, you know, it's so it does fit together, but it's so convoluted. And one thing I thought was interesting is we get so many like double crosses and little sub intrigue going on that we have, you know, specific times where we're seeing two characters meet, contrive a plot, come up with something and then it never even comes to fruition at all. Like we don't even get to it because there's so many other little tangles and everybody is betraying everybody else. You know, mm-hmm. almost everyone goes a few layers deep. I think we have, yeah. it's almost cynical too, because to, you know, jump really into the spoilers, the person who ends up really getting away with everything is essentially the person who acts completely alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone else that like kind of depends on someone else gets crossed and double crossed, and that ends up sort of being their undoing. It's only the it's only the person who shoes all of that and looks out for herself and herself completely 
that is able to, you know, succeed or at least succeed through the main thrust of the plot. Yeah. Right. And and not only is she the only one that doesn't work with anyone, she's also the only one that was uh, sort of forced into the situation. Every other character, once they hear the information, they start to like, you know, finagle their way and start to um, inspire or or et cetera. She was the only one who, I mean, literally the, the way she was forced was through uh, when, you know, mm-hmm. spoilers and content warning, I guess, the uh, when the director basically uh, sexually assaults her in that one scene and she becomes a sort of player in this grander game. And, you know... yeah. I think that's it's it's it might be maybe putting too much of a modern lens on it but I think that's the only like tiny bit of like shining light in the super bleak movie mm-hmm. is that the only character who was sort of forced into the situation is the one who goes like fine I'm going to sit on the side do only the like two or three things I need to do and let you all sort of destroy yourselves while I'll just get away with everything. Yeah, that's a that's a great angle on it. I actually, I'm, one thing I'm kind of excited to talk about with both this film and Paddleton is that both films, I think, feature a protagonist slowly adapting and transforming into a different kind of character by the end of the film. And I think uh, in Yasuko's case, it's like you say, at the beginning, she really is just a secretary with kind of a, a poor background. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you sort of see these machinations start and she even in some voiceover narration, she kind of talks about how she's just slowly filling with hatred and resentment and disgust. Right. And she's acclimating to it and she's starting to get a taste for it and she's starting to. And of course, by the end of the film, the most shocking revelation of all ends up coming from her in the final moments of the movie, I think, for me at least. So it's. I'm I'm a sucker for for stories about transformation. That's why I love Breaking Bad. I, I love stories where you see a character turn from either good to bad, bad to good, bad to worse, and her character, yeah, that transition is really fascinating to see it play out. And it's I I do love the fact that yeah, the one who essentially acted in solitude is the one who who got what she wanted because. I always feel this way when I see films where foul play is involved and people are, are lying and sneaking and, and, you know, scheming. And they always think that there's honor among thieves. Yeah. You know, they always think, you know, well, OK, so I'm a lying sc- scumbag, but I can trust this other lying scumbag. We're going to work together. <laughs> right. It's one of the reasons I liked the character of Furukawa, uh, the secretary to Yoshida, the lawyer for... Um, for... Played by the great Tatsuya Nakadai. Ah, yes. Which is one of, you know, one of the great... Uh, Japanese actors. He's in all of your favorite classic Japanese films from he was in Yojimbo and he was in Sanjiro and he was in a bunch of, you know, uh Kobayashi films. One wow. of the greatest. Yeah, he, he he's even an extra in Seven Samurai. Right. He walks by the camera just holding a sword on his head. That's when he was still <laughs> That's awesome. super young. Yeah, absolutely. Well he he nailed it as Furukawa. It was so cool. Like seeing this this thing play out. First we see, you know, uh Fuji and, and Sato, the wife um, sorry. So Fuji is is the, like the chief secretary, I think, for mm-hmm. – gosh, I really want to make sure I get their names right. But I know we've already given the disclaimer. Kawara. <laughs> uh, that Mr. Kawara, yes, his Kawara. his chief secretary, Fuji, is sort of just talking with his wife, Sato, about their plan, about how they want to they want to find a daughter who's – you know, they, they kind of want to – they're already talking about her sort of raising whoever it's going to be so that they can manipulate things so that they end up with the money. And then and then we cut to the lawyers talking. Uh yeah, Yoshida and Furukawa and Yoshida's just thinking like screw right. all these guys we're gonna 
we're going to make sure nobody gets it and we're just going to open it in right. a like a foundation in his name and then we're going to be in charge of it and yeah we'll be on the board and we'll be able to like you know just settle in and and you know live comfortably for the rest of our lives yeah just coast i love i love the fact that they say you know he he don't he's going to donate it to a charity or to you know social work and they say ah oh, but that's such a waste of it's just going to go to some bureaucrats right yeah we should be the bureaucrats it goes to <laughs> <laughs> right yeah <laughs> Uh, the, the moral objection quickly flies out the window, but right. I, I just love how swiftly I think there's almost, if I'm remembering right, there's three scenes almost back to back to back where we see Furukawa go from conspiring with his boss, Yoshida, to conspiring with, with, uh, Sato, who wants to ensure that this other daughter doesn't come in and then conspiring with Mari, who he believes is one of the missing daughters. He's just every step of the way. He's like, Hey, let me. Let's team up. It it sort of reminded me. Right I, now, I'm 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 certain Bo hasn't seen this, but Illicorice, have you seen the show? It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. On FX, there's there's this amazing episode where the gang gets taken hostage by these by the McPoyle siblings. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like to get into the spirit of this movie, that episode should almost be essential viewing to see <laughs> right. these characters keep getting paired off. Right. All right, Charlie. What's that? There's something I've talked to you about. Yeah. I need you to help me out with this map. Whoa. What are you doing with my map, dude? Frank gave it to me. All right, he's up in the vents, all right? He's going to try and retrieve his will. Now, if I guide it to him successfully, he's going to give me a very large percentage of that. He thinks that Dennis and D... What are you doing? It's boring, dude. I'm getting bored over here. You should be paying attention, Charlie, because this could be very good for you. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. Oh, my God. Lose me. With Frank dead and the will gone, Charlie gets all the money. I get all the money? All the money. What money? The inheritance money. Okay, go. Good. Yeah, good. Do you understand what's happening? Kind of. There's even a quote from Mac. I don't think it's the same episode where he says, I'm playing both sides. So that way I always come out on top. And it's just right. Furukawa very elegantly channeled that sort of dog eat dog vibe that you get with this with this whole story. Right. And he ends up getting like one of the worst outcomes because he's he's so on top of everything, supposedly. And he's he's going about it in a very like playboy way, mm -hmm. you know, where he'll like he'll like seduce the young um, the daughter who's uh, she's she works at a nude uh, Mari. Short, uh, yeah. Mari. Sorry. Because there's also a play with it ends up not being her. It ends up being her sister. This is a film right where. Uh, it's obviously plot driven and there's like a MacGuffin and you're watching these characters sort of go through all of these scenes, but where the characters shine through. And it's also a film where like, it's so dialogue heavy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you're really hanging on like a line or, or another line, but really the, the really intelligent directing and the super like modern at times editing comes through. And that scene when Furukawa goes to meet Mari, to me, is one of the first moments of where like... Um, so he ends up seducing her and he ends up mm -hmm. sleeping with her. But obviously it's in the 60s and it's implied and it's done through this sequence of shots that is just really well done. Like there are moments in this film that I think should just be studied of, you know, really efficient editing to get ideas through where it's just he seduces her and then it cuts outside and then it cuts to just the voice of the waitress at this kind of room they had rented just saying, would you like more beer? And he says, yes. And then when you cut back inside, he just sort of like, she sits up and he's now in his like undershirt. And it, it's moments like these where it really sort of gives you the idea that, you know, what was happening with the Japanese new wave and obviously the French new wave and the 60s were this time where they were really experimenting with, with editing. And that's just one thing I want to highlight because we're going to end up talking about the story a bunch, but yeah. there is just so much intelligent filmmaking in this movie 
And that might get lost a bit as we talk about all the like yeah. characters sort of tricking each other and so on. And and I just really wanted to highlight that because that's that's one of the reasons yeah. uh, that I did pick it was Kobayashi is doing some of his best filmmaking in this film. I'm glad you brought that aspect up because, uh, well, yeah, that that scene, um, I remember especially the, you know, it's it's mirrored in the way that she she kind of lays down. And she, they're seducing each other, really, and and that's an interesting scene too, because he, that's when he's saying, whether sincerely or not, that he, in this game of trusting other crooks and trusting people who are, you know, who stand to gain a lot by betraying you when mm-hmm. you've already, when you're already betraying others, he basically says, you know, I'm so tangled up in my lust for you that I really, I don't care. Like if I end up getting double crossed, it's worth it for this moment. Whether he's sincere in that, I don't know, but that's what he says. And then, and she lays back and the camera kind of follows her. She lays back and she says, well, if you don't trust me, it's it's an interesting scene because he keeps saying that, yeah, I trust you, but I don't really care if if I betray you. And she keeps insisting. He says, I don't care whether you betray me or not. And she keeps saying, no, no, I won't betray you. And will you believe my body if you won't believe my words? You know. And then, and then we get that, we cut away, like you say, and then we get that mirror image of her coming back, now just wearing the, the blanket. And those visual aspects, there were a few that, that kept occurring to me. And I don't know that this stacks up in the cheap poetic way that I noticed it, but there's a lot to do with water and sexual violence. Yeah. We keep getting we keep cutting from moments of rape or assault or exploitation to storms and water spewing out of a gutter and at <laughs> one scene, you know, dolphins leaping into the ocean and right with the harassment yeah absolutely when when they were at the water park or the yeah. or the yeah that's right. right yeah and there's a lot of those jarring cuts that pull you out of this you know this sort of bottled in lots of interior shots despite the fact that we're shooting in such a wide aspect ratio right which is an odd choice for a film i mean it, everyone was trying to go super wide in the 60s mm-hmm. but you know for a film that that sticks indoors and moves around so smoothly, we have this... I I did manage to find one critic talking about the film, and they were likening it to being able to use the periphery to peer into all the the seedy corners and the shadows going on in the the story. And I liked that because, yeah, it's, it's so wide for being inside and then we just jump sometimes from this this heavy dialogue driven story to you know these moments of kind of raw nature and i think that fits in with what this movie is saying about human nature which kind of comes from the inner monologue that we're hearing at one point in the beginning where where she's saying she's talking about how you get used to many things mm. how she was getting used to yeah sort of humiliating being herself exploited. and debasing herself yeah. yeah and being exploited for the money as she's now seducing the director and she's talking about how you know lust and greed and all these other things and that reminded me a bit oddly of crimes and misdemeanors the woody allen film have either of you seen that movie i haven't yet no yeah i haven't had the chance yet to see it it's one of woody allen's more more serious films touches on something that that woody allen was or has been preoccupied with throughout his whole career and that's this playing with the idea that maybe we don't actually end up confessing or getting caught or 
being destroyed by the things that we do. Maybe pieces of us are destroyed, but we just kind of get used to it. We just kind of keep moving along and Mm -hmm. we don't end up descending into fits of tears and jumping off the bridge as they would have in like a code movie, you know, to show the end of of the wicked person. Maybe you just sort of Mm -hmm. dust it off and harden up and continue being more wicked. Right. (laughs) And and actually, that's that's such a good point with... um, to bring it back to your point about sort of the water imagery, I didn't, or the liquid imagery, I didn't really think about this until now, which is the first time she's taken advantage of. And, you know, we're making it sound like there's a bunch of sexual assault. There's, it's, it's not like that type of film, but the, the first time she, she was taken advantage of, she sort of like flails back and hits the, the beaker with water. Yeah. And it ends up spilling all over the uh, tatami uh, floor. I believe it was the tatami floor. And then later, to your point, Chris, as well, of, of her like transformation, when she sort of flips the dynamic and she's starting to take control of this thing that he forced upon her, I believe it's either the cologne or because it's in this like square like uh, container thing that he was smelling that gets tipped over. Yeah. But it's closed this time. It doesn't make a mess. And that's in the very next like in the very next time when, when she takes control over it. And I think that's that that really works to your point, you know, where she was just getting used to the humiliation. She wasn't like having these, you know, 1940s sort of breakdowns of of now she's become, you know, morally whatever soiled or whatever a better word is yeah corrupted bankrupt right yeah morally bankrupt exactly and oh that was such a good point i've seen this film so many times and and it's such a weird thing for me not to notice yeah you were saying that this isn't a film which is uh, sexually explicit or full of rapes and assaults and things and uh, and that's true in a, in a way it isn't but one of the things that that i really noticed is the way that patriarchy and women and sexual exploitation are used through the film because i think it's i think it's key yeah. i mean we've got Absolutely. Uh, the the woman who succeeds in the end does it through she does it through sex and through through her body specifically kind of well through um, using lies and pregnancy and uh, there's you know taking off her makeup versus putting it on it's all to do with you know those things that we could categorize under feminine wiles and she uses these to succeed in the same way that she was brought in by having them exploited by others. You know, those very things, her sexuality and Absolutely. her body. Yes. But all of the scenes that have to do with, you know, the sexual exploitation, they're mostly hinted at and through dialogue or through clever editing. Mm-hmm. The one time where we get something that's a little bit explicit is when is that scene where we meet... Now we, let's Mari. See, Mari, yeah. right? Yeah. Or who that's we think right, is yeah. Mari. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the sort of pornography studio where there where she's uh, she's a nude model for racy photos and we see her we see her going in and she's we see what through the sign what what kind of a building it is and she's chatting with one of the other girls and she's getting undressed and ready to go down and then we cut down and we've got a lot of you know sort of sneering nasty men with their cameras mm-hmm. yeah and we see her there and she's you know she's topless and she's got a fan and it even it's it's sort of a it's an interesting bit of editing because she she spins around and and photography she spins around and we see kind of a peek behind her fan which is what the other guys are going to come up and do now like they each of them kind of walk up and in an odd way just grab the fan and kind of peek behind and then put it back and then go taking their pictures like they're all just going to get their piece there's also that low shot where we see a guy framed under her leg as it's arched, kind of just yeah. giving giving that look with his camera and stuff. There's, they they definitely kind of yeah, make you a part of that. I think 
Yeah, it's very leering, lecherous scene. And they kind of, yeah, right at the beginning, he, he puts you into it. And that, that opens up the way that the the way that we're brought into it and sort of made a party to it, I think gets into, and we we don't need to go too far down this road, but it, it always gets to me that, that something like what we're seeing is happening on the set. And one has to wonder how much of this sort of exploitation and male gaze that we're critiquing in the film is happening there on the set in the making of the film. Yeah. And so it kind of adds these these layers to this to this question of exploitation. But so interested is this movie in, not in a terribly explicit way, but in the suggestion of sexual exploitation, sexual politics, in using sex to those ends, that we have a, we have a murder take place in this film. Yeah. Something that in, in a different film, a film that wasn't so much of a spider's web, would be a central moment. In this, it is mm-hmm. it is off screen. It's mm-hmm. barely implied, and it is seen as it gets much less focus, much less attention than the than the sexual crimes, which vary from rape to slight sexual manipulation to seduction. Well, just a variance, I guess, or manipulation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we have the we have a murder that happens, a, a siblicide, no less. Yeah we it's it's barely touched on you know it's not it doesn't become part of the web of moral quandaries that we're going through i kind of like the i kind of like the fact that the film is almost it almost feels as though it's made with the knowledge that you're going to come into it with all of your moral hang-ups with all of the and i say hang-ups as if it's a bad thing get over it no uh (laughs) as if we're going to bring with it all of the baggage of what we consider to be right and just and so much like the secretary we find ourselves getting disquietingly acclimated to it over the course of the film where by again like for me when when the murder is is mentioned near the end of the film i'm just kind of like oh look at that darn well there's that thread closed kind of thing it it wasn't this it wasn't this oh my gosh cuz at that point you're so embroiled in it as a viewer it's it's fascinating and i think a big part of it plays into the fact Kind of like how how you guys are both kind of talking about sort of sexual exploitation and stuff can factor into it. I, I think it's part of a, a larger theme of just using people. The film makes it kind of clear that the world these guys live in, humanity is a commodity. People are a, a resource to be spent and used. Interestingly enough, for Yasuko, the secretary, by the end, she manages to turn the use of her into something she can use against others. It's, it seems like the entire crux of this story revolves around not having a problem with using people. And I, and I, I love the fact, it's kind of like with that, that photo shoot sequence. I think you're meant to be uncomfortable. I think you're meant to be, to, to be worried about people being exploited and stuff. And then it just kind of slowly erodes away. And not a lot of movies can take a viewer on an, an emotional journey like that as well as this one did. Right. And I, and I think one point that Bo was bringing up as well is that one thing we need to highlight about, and one of the reasons I was saying, like, it's it's not exactly that kind of film, doesn't, I didn't mean it in a way where mm-hmm. all that exploitation wasn't happening. But I, I always think about the character that ended up on top at the end with Yesuko. Right. There's and you, we were talking about like uh, the patriarchy and all this, these like skewed gender dynamics and the class dynamics. And, you know, this will be a really good point to talk about Kobayashi for, for just a moment, because everything you guys pointed out, absolutely, that is like a, a Kobayashi special, if you will. But, but just to highlight a quick detail, you were talking about that very first scene when uh, Kawara's uh, legal representative sees Yesiko in the in, in the future part where when she's dressed really well and she's looking like a star and so on. Yeah. And one detail that the film kind of lingers on is he doesn't just like go up to her or he speaks to her. He sort of grabs her wrist 
almost like aggressively, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And when you counter that with the very end, because she keeps calling him unpleasant in the voiceover, and when you counter that with the very end where he's, you know, he's telling her, like, when we cut back to the moment when they're having coffee or tea together, and he's, like, trying to convince her, you know, oh, you should, like, invest some of this money into this venture I have. And she just gets up and walks away. And it's this moment of, you know, her taking back everything, especially because in the beginning of the film, she's also treated really badly by the chief secretary. She's treated badly by even, you know, the director, Kawara. And it's and in all these like microaggressions or all these like harassing ways where it's just like, be quiet or you should have been quicker. Or, you should have, you know what I mean? All these sort of little moments. Yeah. And I think Kobayashi was so good at this because he, he was a very political filmmaker. And one of the reasons this film is considered like a minor work is because it is arguably his least politically explicit film. Hmm. Every single film he'd done before and afterwards are super anti-authoritarian, super anti-imperialist, both Japanese imperialist and, and U.S. imperialism, which was very important in Japan because there was U.S. occupation post-war. And the films he had just done before this were the Human Condition films, which were, uh, it's called Human Condition. They're, they're a trilogy, three-hour epics each about the Second World War, and the films he did, he'd done after this were these samurai films, you know, like uh, Harakiri and Samurai Rebellion and then Kwaidan as well, where they were very explicitly anti-sort of samurai code, anti-shogun, anti... You know where usually in these samurai films you would have people go like, we need to protect the leader of the clan or we need to protect... They were very anti-that. And when when you look at this film, which is not very explicit in these things, it's really this sort of noirish genre piece about these characters trying to get money but then there's all this class consciousness coming in with the way the poorer characters are treated and you know we were talking about mari the the older daughter who works at the studio but when we go to meet the other daughter who passed away we see the foster i I believe it's the mother who's this flower seller you just see the living situation she's in when you compare it to like this semi-mansion that Kawara lives in and it's just there's a lot of that going on and to me yeah. uh one of the things that I was highlighting with like who ends up on top in uh, at the end of the film is because it would have been so easy for the film to take the route of all the characters are corrupt they all get their undoing is is the thing they did wrong and for the film to very explicitly go like no Yasuko is going to take the things where she was forced into this as the secretary, as the victim of sexual assault, and turn it around and not just end with like a portion of the inheritance, which she was probably thinking of in the beginning, but to end with everything is, is I think it's such a Kobayashi thing to do, which I know sounds weird, but if, if anyone's listening to this, go watch his other films. There are so many, <laughs> so many great films, you know, and, and, you could use this as a jumping off point for the for his other films. Sorry about my mini rant, but I just had to get the Kobayashi rant in there at some point. It's nice if people are happening to come into it through one of these works that tends to be overlooked because to then they get to catch that and move on to the to the bigger ones that are going to be easier to easier to find yeah, and to yeah. talk about. This is my gateway drug. It's my first Kobayashi. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's right to to talk as well about the that in addition to the gender politics, he's looking at it through sort of a a socialist lens. I think he's got the sort of socialist left lens that can that can really only come from having lived through uh, something that was so right. through an extremely fascist re- regime. You know, having just 
coming out of the war. And he was a notorious like leftist socialist as well. Like that's that's absolutely on point. Mm. Yeah, yeah. To have it swing that way after coming through it, I think you know because it's a film that I think re- regardless of whether your your politics are far to the left, um, right, yeah. pre- presumably listeners to our show aren't fans of fascism. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would hope uh, to. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a fascist, you can unsubscribe right now. <laughs> Get out of here. We got no room. So uh, all that I mean by that is, is it doesn't it doesn't become a a preachy leftist message message that feels at least in this one, you know, which we're talking about as being less political than others. It doesn't feel like an extreme heavy-handed. It's more a look at human nature and exposing some of these things coming from again the lens of someone who endured you know, what you could yeah. reasonably call the opposite of these kind of leftist ideas. Yeah. And so I think that I think that shows through. And it and it's done in so, in a way that is that's a a bit disconcerting and troubling at moments, but with a lot of finesse on the technical side and with disturbingly a fair amount of yeah. entertainment. I mean it's almost in a way, it's almost soap opera esque, you know, so many little twists and turns and kind of <laughs> So it becomes mm-hmm. a kind of kind of pulpy in yeah. that way, in that it's just so uh, engrossing, you know, to see okay, who's gonna who's gonna get away with it? Like, is he going to get what he wants from her? Is she gonna get what he she wants from him? All of this, and I'm always fascinated by films that that can take a message, not saying that this is an entirely message driven film, but that can have some artistic mm-hmm. oomph and maybe something to say, but can nestle that deftly within a story that's. That's yeah. entertainment, yeah. you know, that if you pulled some of these things out, this would be sort of a just a straight genre flick. Yeah, I actually I loved that about this. I love it when especially in a case like this where you've got such almost mythically cruel people. I've, this, this almost feels like it could be told in fairy tale format just with how how elemental everybody is. But like like you mentioned, Delicorish, I, I loved that sequence where we get to see the sort of squalor that one of this you know, billionaire directors ex flames lives in. And I think that the daughter being dead is a part of that squalor that I almost kind of felt like she probably would have been okay if they didn't live in these conditions. And that must be some cruel irony to be taking care of the child of this incredibly wealthy man in such horrid conditions. And at the same time, I absolutely adore it when a film can have such a powerful impact on me without telling me to feel things. It's just the confidence that it has in simply showing it to you and then letting you react to it in your own human way. It reminds me a little bit of a newer film, Parasite, by Bong Joon-ho that I really loved. And Mm -hmm. there's a moment, you know, towards the end of that one where, I mean, obviously that one is all about sort of classism and, and class conflict as well, where we sort of see this heavy rainfall that mildly inconveniences this wealthy couple up on the hill. And then we see that for people living down in the lower ends of the city, their house is essentially flooded. Yeah. And this this contrast, it's sometimes contrast is all you need. You don't need to have a character spell it out for the audience. Sometimes just showing them these two completely opposite conditions existing in the same film. It, it, it can be a, a slap to the face, this cold splash of water that does more than a, a basic message could ever do, I think. Yeah, the way that, that you're bringing that up, Chris, makes me think, I was wondering at the beginning, because I yeah, I, I hadn't seen this, this film before preparing for this episode. As I was watching it, and we're getting the, the inner monologue 
through narration, through voiceover. Mm-hmm. I I was wondering where that was going to go because I'm always I, I'm I'm always a little skeptical of when we are not skeptical is not the right word I guess, but when we have a lot of that exposition kind of being handed to us, I I don't think that narration is something that should always be avoided. You hear that rule bandied about in screenwriting classes or something, but I I don't really buy it. But there's certainly a point that sometimes you get narration that's just telling us what we're seeing, and that is sort of dull and useless. And other times you get narration that's filling in a lot of gaps of information that we're not being given. And sometimes you're wondering like, okay, well, could you have given us this information in another way? And so as it's coming through so explicitly at the beginning, all of this kind of narration, I think that does add to that that fable quality, that sort of almost that moral fable. And it's it contrasts with the with the way that lots of things aren't quite on the nose mm-hmm. or spelled out for us. And so we get that that juxtaposition of her just flat out telling us all of her feelings and emotions as she sits there looking yeah. at something uh, versus the way that the story doesn't quite tell us all those It things. makes for a really powerful scene when she's, I'd say towards near the end of the film, maybe two thirds mark, she talks about how Kawara, the, uh, the dying director, how he basically has become physically incapable of taking advantage of her. So now she has to essentially strip naked and just walk around in front of him. You seem kind of leering at her. She sort of yeah. paces back and forth in his room. The scene in itself is a bit disquieting, you know, just to kind of the dynamic between them. But then to hear her narration, that was, it, it was interesting format wise, because that was the kind of stuff that you would normally, that's the kind of information you would get through, say, a novel, that inner conflict going in, on inside of her. But at the same time, I don't think a novel would have done that scene justice because it's the, it's that reading of this slow, sickening corruption of her paired with this image of her, you know, traipsing around putting on a show for this guy. Yeah, I, th- I think that this movie makes brilliant use of, of its format. It's the sort of exposition that we only get typically in, well, a lot of films have to find a way around it unless... There, you know, I'm thinking of Japan anime or Japanese anime, where there's a tradition of characters just sort of narrating their thoughts, right. or you get it a bit in noir sometimes, or with musicals, right, where they can they can take a moment and just sing their their inner monologue for us so that we understand. Those films just get to kind of embrace it and show us, whereas a lot of other films kind of have to they become clunky if they don't weave it in in a way that feels natural. So it, yeah, a style thing. I definitely think, yeah, I, that's exactly what I was going to say, that it's a style thing. Because, I mean, especially with, with that with that music, you know, the little jazz music that Toru Takamitsu uh, composed for this film. Quick, very quick tangent, Toru Takamitsu, one of the greatest Japanese composers who's done a bunch of really great Japanese films uh, with Tishigahara and Kobayashi and even done a Kurosawa film with Dodesuka Den. Oh, and wow. this one's very unusual for him because it's super jazzy. Right, and in those scenes where he, where Yesko is doing the sort of inner monologue, a lot of times that's when the music kicks in, and I do think that's probably some of the some of the things it's inheriting from noir films. It's very sort of stylized. Even even her narration tends to be of the uh, Chris was bringing this up sort of stylized sense of talking about her feelings and how she's dealing with the situation. And I I wonder how much of that is to contrast her with the other characters mm. because we don't get inner monologues for anyone but her and how much of that is one to sort of give her narrative power and the other is to have us sympathize with her sort of the moment when she decides to really trick Kawara 
when she sort of tells him that she's pregnant, but she doesn't want this, you know, she doesn't want his money or whatever. And then she runs out of the room crying to go to the bathroom to wash the makeup off of her face and then to go back and to sort of have this like heart to heart with her. And the narration is telling us that she knew that washing the makeup off of her face would seem would would make it more endearing would sort of have him play into her hands and i wonder like how much of yeah we see her do that but there there is something special about the way it's narrated and the way it, it's i don't know I, I wonder if i'm just being an apologist for this film but i <laughs> <laughs> you know like i just really like the way it did it well it's it's a chilling moment because that's the moment where she talks about how she realized that she could embrace yeah. the lie and start to believe her own words. And it's, it's essentially when she, she levels up in manipulation. <laughs> right. She discovers that rather than just sort of being exploited and getting some money out of it, she can sort of up her game and become one of the power players yeah. by, by this by, by this simple yeah. immoral trick. Yeah, basically. I mean, Truth tellers hate her. One simple immoral trick to improve your life. Seven will blow your mind. Yeah, we can see the ads Yeah, right I now. just sort of saw it as like, Yasuko has earned the power of deceit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do, I do just, I wanted to get one, just one note in. Yeah. Because I wrote this note and I bold, you know, sort of emboldened it and I was like, I really need to make sure that I mention this. This is just another moment of uh, to highlight just how intelligent sort of the filmmaking is we've already seen the secretary sort of go to you know follow the trail to find uh the young daughter that we were talking about uh who ends up passed away the daughter of the flower seller and then they're sort of playing around and forging a birth certificate so they can get that inheritance and then furukawa oh god am i messing that name up i don't believe so uh the yeah the uh (laughs) the the assistant of the legal representative is going to make sure like he's basically going through the same clues and tracks right to make sure if that birth certificate was forged or not and instead of having us go through all the same scenes it's just three quick vignettes Mm -hmm. where it's he gets the birth certificate and then it's a shot of him on the exact same street and then it's a shot of him looking at the flower seller she stands up and then it's a shot of them at the graveyard and we get a shot of the grave and it's just these three quick vignettes where the film is saying We've seen these play out. I, you could probably assume what they're gonna what they're gonna talk about. And the reason I'm bringing this up, apart from like just the the wonderful editing, is that I think the cut co- the cut from that grave. So the grave says on it, "Lonely light, pure pure hearted child," right? And then the cut from that to the lawyer <laughs> laughing as he hears that the birth certificate had been forged because the child is dead is just the perfect encapsulation of just how terrible the people in in this film you know are and i just wanted to real quick just bring that up that's a fantastic call out that i i felt very similarly about that sequence of events it was it's this almost cinematic shorthand to almost this non-verbal acknowledgement for those of you who haven't quite figured out yet what's going on here is this very concise i would say what 30 to 60 second long bit where this exposure to tragedy and then once again they view it as a commodity they view it as another piece on the chessboard of ah this dead child will surely come in handy (laughs) right yeah it's it's... the it's the ellipses that we discussed back in Mm. the the black stallion episode that yeah shorthand essentially and i think it's a great note to to bring up now because you're right it does encapsulate in 
in a short moment the themes of this yeah. thing about the way that they're exploiting people and and what they they have become yeah. through their greed over time. We we go from the most sincere shot in the film, arguably, where is this mother looking at the grave of her dead child to just a man laughing. And really quickly, just slip this in again. That type of tragedy that we get in the ellipsis or the vignettes is the type of thing you might experience in one of his other mm. films. So it's almost like a little hint of like, if you wanted something that was more heartfelt and more like, sort of going through, that's what you would get in the other films. This one, we're just going to show the worst side of, human, of, of humanity. <laughs> a little a little cameo of tragic humanity in, yeah. this, in this otherwise terrifying film. We, we haven't really talked about the climax of the film yet, which I suppose we don't necessarily need to. We can leave a few little strands for people who have made it this far without seeing it yet. I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned that earlier, just uh, are, you, are you talking about the climax with like when we cut back to her in the future or like oh with the 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 climax the finale what i what i considered to be the finale of the film is when everything kind of converges the moment where kawara sort of gathers everyone and says hey i've made up my mind about the will and as he says i've made up my mind we get his deadbeat we get his sort of deadbeat rapscallion son sado kind of coming in all I mean, funny I call him a deadbeat. His dad's the deadbeat, but he's <laughs> he's clearly worse for wear. He, he comes storming in all bandaged up from his bar tussle that, funny enough, he's wearing the bandages that are basically the evidence, the scars of the thing that cost him his good graces to begin with. Of, you know, we see Kawara reading the paper and being like, ah, oh, freaking idiot, this idiot kid. Yeah. And then he shows up in the bandages. Give me the you're supposed to you know and his whole thread sort of ties itself up neatly and then i love that you know of the three kids we get that they're trying to get a hold of i loved that each of the three had their own sort of unique spin on how it could go wrong because with sato we see that he's kind of a he's sort of like a just a, a thuggish horny little rough around the edges kid who a hoodlum basically a hoodlum. exactly because yeah, he, he, he's got his gang and they sort of harass people and yeah, yeah. exactly so that could Easily, that one barely even has to be stoked. I mean, you have a little bit of of his relationship with Yasuko and uh, sort of Kawara intervening on her behalf a bit, but the, his is, is a thread that almost closes itself up. Fuji does sort of take him to that club to get him right. liquored up and fighting and stuff. Yeah, so we get him taken care of, and then we find out that revelation that Mari uh, has she she's not actually okay. So she had there was there there were the two names there was a. She was she was basically masquerading as the actual daughter, having murdered her sister, her sister. Yeah. to to get into that spot, and so right. she's disqualified vis a vis the police, and we're left with the daughter who is is left unchecked for a little bit longer. But everything kind of converges as all these threads start to fall apart, and then we get that sort of redo of towards the end when uh, that new that the lawyer is disqualifying everyone and, and all their plans are exploding in their faces and you have Yasuko is just cool as a cucumber in the corner there just waiting for the cash to fall into her lap right and it, it makes for a fun juxtaposition actually because we sort of see Yoshida the lawyer who was maybe one of the more clever schemers he, he was he was he mm -hmm. was kind of he was playing all sides but not quite as as carelessly as uh Furukawa was and He's kind of dangling at the end of the string during this scene as Yosuko sort of exerts her newfound power over him. 
And then we cut to the scene of them at the end, uh, back at them in the future having lunch together. And he's just laughing and ha 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 ha. Oh, so uh, how is the child? You know, and then once again, that idea of using people that he's he's been betrayed yeah. he's been pissed off but he's just kind of like oh well she's got the money now time to start kissing up to but but that's really funny because in the, the scene still. there's a scene right before that scene you know after the death and where he's sort of trying to exert power and disqualify mm-hmm. everyone where he confides in her about the daughter about the forged birth right. certificate and so on and and kobayashi does this thing which is probably my favorite shot in the entire film because it's so just understated where yesko has the compendium of laws in her lap and as he's sort of giving her the plan and even telling her like open the sealed envelope because that'll be evidence that she knew and that would be fraud and she would be disqualified as well or, or, or so on she's it we we just get these shots and I, and I wrote these notes down where it's just we get a close-up tilt from a profile shot of her looking down we pan down and her finger is sort of like going across you know the wording of the law and this is all while the lawyer is absolutely giving his entire plan and so on and just filling like the auditory of, of the scene. The, all you can hear yeah. is his voice. And then we cut to another shot, an extreme close-up of her eyes just looking down. And that's all we need. That's all we need to know that she sort of knows that he's trying to like make her basically an accomplice in this knowledge or or to help to have uh, her help him. And she has an entirely different plan. And it's it's funny later when you were talking about when she's so cool and she's so calm that was that it was just those shots where we knew like she knows what's going on and and she's got the plan yeah you know yeah i love that as he's describing his plan to her in that scene you're talking about he says well you know you're clearly at worst you're his favorite person in the world right now and so he's talking about the leverage that she has and then Within the same breath says, and of course, I'll be in charge and I'll make sure that you get rewarded for your efforts, you know, and once again, honor among thieves. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I don't even necessarily want to talk about the final conversation that she has with him where she turns down his offer and talks a little bit about what has happened with the pregnancy. That was that, that shook me. It's never explicitly said what happens, but it makes you wonder of like, oh, that's the moment when for it to just be passed on in a quick conversation. It's probably just like the murder earlier. It's probably one of the harshest. revelations to just happen in a dialogue scene yeah exactly you're and it's such a wonderfully ambiguous note to end the film on where you're wondering just how dark she's had to go to secure her future and yeah great film i you know a lot of people um i guess we could we could just segue neatly into who this is meant for but i think with with my upbringing i've grown up around you know my parents and relatives and just people in my life who tended to say if a film was too dark it wasn't worth your time they would say oh it's too it's too evil it's too mean my my parents wouldn't let me watch the burbs until i was like 16 because they said it was too mean of a movie right <laughs> i think wait sorry which film the burbs with tom hanks and meg ryan oh okay or wait i was trying to make sure whether you're saying the birds or the yeah. burbs i heard the i heard birds. the birds as well and i was like oh yeah i guess that is a mean <laughs> film yeah those birds are mean man <laughs> yeah sorry and to correct myself carrie fisher not meg ryan but yeah anyways Besides the point, I think that there is tremendous value in films like this that show the dark side of humanity because it's it's interesting. Referring once again to Parasite just a little bit, both films, I think, with with their commentary on classism, I like the idea that they present, which is I feel like a, a film that's more on the nose about it, that has less subtlety and less nuance 
could just say rich people bad. Like rich people are bad. The the poor people need need to rise up and get their comeuppance and stuff. What they what they end up doing is talking about how wealth corrupts. And so in in both films, you get these people who, as they sort of rise up and they they reach the level of the oppressors, they look back on their past lives with almost resentment and disgust, as we see her do. And to that extent, it, it makes it clear that the enemy isn't necessarily an other. It isn't necessarily this this monstrosity of like, oh, well, these guys are inhuman. It's almost a startling reminder of just how human they are. It's, it's, it's unfortunately kind of human nature to have the inclination to use people for your own, to your own ends. And so I think being aware of the beast inside of us, being aware of our capacity for cruelty and selfishness and, and shining a light on it so vividly as this film does, it's, it's a fantastic character study. And it's, I think it's a great movie to watch if you want to learn about yourself, just based on your own reactions to things as, as they unfold. I, I think this would be a great film for anybody who is in the mood for introspection, for a, a, a dark character study, or for a plot that almost feels like a murder mystery in a way, where instead of who killed who, it's who's going to get the cash. But it unfolds very similarly, I think, with a similar cast of seedy characters. I, th- I think I think a lot of people could get a lot out of it. If, if you if you if you can handle subtitles and non English language films, please go see it. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was taking notes for my next video. Um, I might I might end up crediting crediting Chris as a co-writer just if I ever do a video on that film because that was such a perfect encapsulation of just yeah everything I I would I would want to say onto the film the only thing I would add is that please go watch this film or any of Kobayashi's film Kobayashi is going to be your next favorite classic Japanese director I'm ready to dig in it's the same thing with Powell and Pressburger when we did the I'm that's my favorite thing about this podcast is I am finding all these fantastic I mean the whole angle of the podcast is that I'm the pleb I'm the layman who's I I, I fill my life with with trash watching <laughs> the streaming originals I make Bo watch aren't even the worst ones I've seen I mean we've we've actually had some pretty good streaming originals I think uh, it makes me happy that I have an excuse to expose myself to some good content and and learn about some really, really, really cool filmmakers. So this has been a lot of fun. Well, I'm happy to provide an excuse for you to watch something beneficial and enlightening. <laughs> carve out that space for you. It wasn't going to carve itself, Bo, so you know, kudos to you. Um, speaking of streaming originals that I enjoyed more than most other ones we've done, let's, let's, talk, let's talk Paddleton. Spoilers, I did enjoy it. Bo, uh, I assigned you and, and our friend Licorice here, Paddleton. In response to the inheritance, uh, let's 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 get everybody up to speed here. Yeah, so Paddleton is a Netflix film from 2019, and it follows a chapter in the lives of two buddies: Andy, played by Ray Romano, and Michael, played by Mark Duplass, who is also one of the writers. Uh, the movie opens directly with a terminal cancer diagnosis for Michael, and pretty early in, we've discovered that these two friends who are stilted, maybe even stunted, are kind of outsiders to society, and they really depend on each other to a remarkable degree. And the thrust of the plot is that Michael has decided to end his life by legal and medically induced suicide due to the cancer diagnosis, and he's asking Andy to help him in that process. The dying part is... Eh, it's... Yeah. Hospital, the tubes, and bloating, and that, that, I don't want any part of that. 
So I'm thinking before before it gets bad, I want to end it. They got a they got a whole process, and when you get less than six months, they give you this these pills you can take, and you can do it at home. Sounds, you know, but I don't want to do it alone and. I was hoping you'd help me out. Uh, we know this at the start of the movie, and so by the time, the, most of the movie is just our time seeing these characters wrestle with that fact or try to avoid it, and some of the process that they have to go through, for example, the drug is only legally sold at certain pharmacies, and so they kind of have to go on a road trip to go buy the buy the drug. But the majority of us, the majority of the film is just us seeing them react to this bombshell revelation of a cancer diagnosis in the pattern of their lives, which seem to have a lot of uh, routines and, again, rely on their companionship. So uh, right off, just, just to get this out of the way, because I was a little curious about this. So to me, when I think of a Duplass film, which is almost what any film that he is involved in is going to end up being called, I start thinking of Mumblecore. <laughs> now, I'm curious... Either of you, um, how, how do you define mumblecore? And do you think this is a mumblecore film? Because I have a feed-off question, but yeah. let me throw it to you. Um, <laughs> I actually heard the term mumblecore tossed around a bit uh, for a few years before I fully understood what it was. I typically heard it first with films that would star Michael Sarah or Jonah Hill. And I, I can definitely detect certain trends. I think... The way that I have come to identify mumblecore is films where, I mean, obviously mumbling or mumbliness is a component to some people. I don't necessarily think that Andy and Michael mumble too much in the film, but there's definitely this vibe of, I, th I think mumblecore is almost dialogue that is so real that it's uncomfortable or... I, I, yeah, I think mumblecore just, it, it feels like you're eavesdropping on a conversation. That That's kind of how I would 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 summarize it but very similar to the term walking simulator with video games it can be used deroga derogatorily derogatorily derogatory <laughs> people can use it as almost an insult <laughs> for the film that they are describing and i think it's not necessarily a bad thing because obviously mumblecore it's kind of like i think some people associate it with like hipster indie kind of play some acoustic guitar while... Well, it's definitely part of the independent movement. And yeah. those can start to become a bit uh, twee, you know, when as they start um, multiplying and kind of building off each other. <laughs> yeah. Right. And any any kind of new subgenre. Right, right. Kind of, yeah, it can get a little bit inundated. I, I, mean, I mean, I was just thinking, because I wanted to hear Chris's opinion on this first, because I'm not super familiar with uh, Mumblecore. Like, obviously, I, I'm familiar with people who came out of Mumblecore, you mm. know, like Greta Gerwig and... and, and you know, obviously Duplass, and I've, I've sort of, it's one of those things where I feel like the label of mumblecore now is being applied sort of a bit more broadly. Mm. In the beginning, like when you look at the earlier films, yeah, there, there was the naturalistic acting, there was the super lo-fi, you know, camera work, it was, it was almost like the Dogma 95 films of, of, of Denmark or whatever, in the sense of like, they, they almost like, they had these uh, requirements to be considered a mumblecore film, whereas now I feel like I, I personally saw, I didn't exactly, like I saw the influences of Mumblecore on this film, but I don't know if I would personally 
put this in apart from just Duplass's uh uh well you know work on it yeah mm-hmm. and and I was I was curious too because I mean obviously Ray Romano who we don't associate with any sort of a dramatic performance and we don't really associate with mumblecore but I I looked up mumblecore to see whether it was listed under the films and it isn't they they list Duplass as one of the you know the the founders of it but he's not there this movie isn't present they also say um just as a fun little note here the mumblecore should not be confused with mumble rap. So I'll just leave that. That's uh, some homework for you listeners at home. I have heard my yeah. share of mumble rap. Important clarification. <laughs> uh, anyway, all this is a all this is a digression. But I mean, coming out of mumblecore, uh, as you as you put it, I think is a good way to talk about it because yeah, it has those influences, even if it doesn't maybe fit neatly into that zone. But I think it does paint a picture for uh, someone who maybe um, hasn't watched the film of what kind of a, a tone that this movie has. It is a lot of, uh, yeah, what we call naturalized acting, uh, some improvisation in the dialogue. In fact, actually, this is an odd point to do it maybe, but I'm just going to right now anyway. Do it. I, I have a moment just because uh, we can get right in and talk about the this dialogue and the way that it shows us who these people are, mm-hmm. and yeah, the the improvisational nature of it. So I have a, I have here uh, Ray Romano talking in an interview about the dialogue. But it's also an improv movie too, which is cool. That, when I say an improv movie, he wrote an outline. There was like a twenty page outline. There was no script, um, so each scene would be outlined, and we would talk about it before, and then we would just do do the scene. So it's kind of like I don't know. That's how he does his, mo- most of his movies, Mark Duplass, all of them actually. And so it was a little dangerous, a little scary for me, because I had never done that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, that's the the sort of a, a film it is. So working with, you know, apparently in the style that Duplass often does, and he is credited as one of the writers of this film, you know, it's a 20-page outline, which is obviously not the typical approach. And so there's a lot of improvisation. And um, there's even a, a story about the way some of that improvisation bore out in a key scene that I might share later. That totally makes sense for me. I don't think like there is a scene in this film, except maybe near the end, which we'll talk about in a moment, where you don't feel like the the dialogue's been improvised. And I mean that in a way of where like it's very naturalistic, but also the way the editing and and the shot reverse shot sometimes is cut almost a bit too quickly because it's clear that they're sort of trying to edit around what was an, an improvised scene. And it gives the film this very yeah naturalistic quality but mm. but hearing like romano say that that they ju- they were just working with an outline i, I you, you totally get the feeling from the beginning interesting yeah that's a good point probably just yeah did multiple there's probably hundreds of hours on the cutting room floor that they didn't even use well and the story is i mean it, it it's it's a fairly formulaic little story mm-hmm. you know it it goes through the three act beats in a way that's you know, that's pretty predictable. So you can see that, and that's certainly the approach that I think you would want to take with something where you're going to be so loose with the dialogue and the characters, you need some kind of structure there to go off of. It's in certain character choices and revelations that this film is something unique. Mm -hmm. By By the plot alone, you know, you've, you've seen this friend dying of cancer movie before yeah for sure it's, it's funny that you would because you were talking about it being you know labeled as a mumblecore film which obviously mm-hmm. with Duplass's you know involvement in it but let me make it clear I did like this film and I'm, I will speak highly of it in other topics but as I was watching it this comment came to my mind and I couldn't like shrug it off this it felt like 
indie movie the movie at times <laughs> where it was just mm-hmm. yeah it, as you were saying like some of the beats it was going through was were so formulaic not necessarily in the hollywood sense of like oh by page 11 you need this or that but the idea of like two middle-aged men uh the way they show their jobs just for one scene so you get it they have this quirky thing where they watch a kung fu movie they go on a road trip their interactions like yeah like it was if we just describe this film like that no one would want to watch it. It's a, a lot of the life comes through, as you're saying, like sort of the little things that come out throughout. Yeah, yeah. The a, a scene that really hit what you're talking about for me is when Ray Romano's character Andy is kind of riffing about the idea of someone passing by on a hoverboard. Mm. Yeah. I tell you what happened at lunch today. No, oh, what's up? I was at the the diner uh, next to my office. Yeah. I had a booth by the window. And this guy floats by the window. Guy just floats by the window. I mean, he floats. I mean, I just see, you know, I can't see his bottom. Yeah. He's not, his bottom ain't moving. You can tell he ain't moving. You know, he floated by the window. He's probably on a hoverboard. Skateboard? No, that's just, you know, those things those kids do. They put on their feet. Yeah, I know he's on a hoverboard, but it just started me thinking. If you saw a guy hover, imagine that, that would screw up your whole life. So he hovered, so what? If you saw a guy hover, so what? Yeah, so a guy, a guy hovers. So life's normal for you then, right after that? I don't have a problem with it. And it's a funny little scene, and there are certainly moments of humor in this, and, and we'll talk about the way that the characters approach that. But it's so clearly to me a scene where, you know, they improvised the substance of it, but they had an externality that they were trying to touch on, which is we need to show that Ray Romano's character is the kind of a guy who is, who needs rules and rigidity mm-hmm. and sees the world in a very certain way. Mm-hmm. And we need to show that Michael, the Mark Duplass character, is someone who is more accepting and open to, you know. So it's kind of their odd couple pairing. Yep. And yeah, it, it felt kind of on the nose and formulaic to me there too, even though they're working with what's, probably, if not completely, improvised dialogue. Yeah. It, it's just a very typical way of showing like, ah, okay, this guy's this way, this guy's this way. And, you know, obviously every, you know, we were just talking about shortcuts with with uh, The Inheritance and every movie needs to use them and they can be used well. And I don't say that they're used badly in Paddington, but there are, or Paddington, <laughs> Paddington, yeah. Paddington. <laughs> <laughs> I don't say they use badly in in Paddleton, but yeah, there are moments where the formulaic nature of it could maybe be a little bit distracting and sort of remind us, ah, uh, yeah, we're here. We are in a movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting because yeah, on paper and even in its execution at times, it is very much a by the numbers indie film. That's the little slice of life thing that we've seen a ton of times before. I think one benefit I had going into it is that I've been aware of those films, but that again. As with most movies that aren't streaming trash, I have to be made to watch it. <laughs> so I, I recognize them as, 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 as cliches and tropes and, and kind of well-trodden territory. But thankfully, I was able to, to sort of watch it with the doe-eyed ignorance of a person who doesn't have a ton of experience with, with Mumblecore yet or with those components that get used and reused so many times. Because I think <laughs> what, what really elevated it for me from its brethren in the in the cliche indie crowd was the performances from Romano and Duplass. Du, Duplass? Duplass? Even American names I don't know. 
Mark Duplass. <laughs> the 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 acting from them, I think it sucked me into their relationship. And by the end of the film, I realized I could have watched these two guys playing these two characters do virtually anything for the plot and enjoyed myself because it their dynamic was enjoyable. And at the same time, it's kind of funny. Looking back, I feel almost duped by how obvious the, the quirky kung fu movie shtick is with them sort of, you know, watching this movie, which I don't know if you guys knew. I didn't know until I looked it up, but the movie they watched doesn't exist. They, it was made for the movie. Oh. Death Punch. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the two or so actors that they see are credited in the credits as being characters in, in the Death Punch that they made for this movie. Yeah. Which that was, that was pretty mm-hmm. convincing work, I thought. But uh, yeah, as they're watching, you've got... They're, they're, they're kind of acting along, shaking their, their food and like whacking each other and stuff in conjunction with stuff happening on screen. And that's it, it is kind of shortcutty, you know, again, talking about shorthand, it's like it's a quick, easy way to show that they're quirky buddies. But I think they're acting in some of the improvisational dialogue between them is what ends up winning me over, I think, what, what ends up kind of endearing them to me and making me care about, you know, as we go along this little quaint quiet journey to the end of the film by the time we get to the ending of it i i've i found myself emotionally invested and and movies get brownie points if they can actually make me elicit emotions and really like actually feel things that i wouldn't have felt if i hadn't been watching the movie and i think the the some of the final moments of the movie did that for me so i think if anything, that's basically just a credit to the performances of Ray Romano and Mark du- Duplass, Duplass, of how <laughs> how well they sold the characters to me. But yeah, it's stuff we've seen before, but never quite for me, never quite in the light that they show themselves here. Yeah, well, maybe the, maybe this is a, a chance to talk a little bit about the relationship between these two characters, which you were saying, Chris, that you'd be happy to kind of see them going through anything. Mm-hmm. So one of the most noticeable things about this film, I haven't looked through a lot of reviews, but I would be willing to bet that pretty much all of them are going to at some point mention the platonic intimacy between these two male characters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I did see Duplass talking about that and the way that he wanted to make that's sort of that was the seed of the film that he wanted to make a film which has a platonic male relationship, you know, where they're allowed to be intimate and to love each other, but not in a sexual way and not in the, what he called homophobic way of just turning it all into a bromance and kind of a joke. And like, there's kind of a meme, if you will, been going around on social media for a while talking about, it's not, it's not a, I don't know what you call a viral post, which is not funny. (laughs) I don't know. But um, (laughs) talking about the way that the, the male characters in Lord of the Rings you know, have a lot of, you know, they, they embrace or they kiss each other's foreheads or so on, but it's not, uh, they're n- these aren't explicitly gay relationships. And aside from maybe something like that, it's hard to think of a film where you do get a buddy-buddy man and man relationship that doesn't either go the route of homosexual romance or going the other way in that it's, yeah, it's all kind of a big joke and it comes up. And, and they, there is like a moment, you know, where some jokes are made where they're kind of Presumed. They're mistaken for a, a couple, and they're kind of like, oh, a yeah. Couple. Yeah, it comes up a couple of times with the, with the same character, yeah. 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 Um, remind me of your relationship. How do you know each other? No, uh, we're, uh, we're neighbors. Yeah. Okay. I live on top of him. But it's not, a, it's not a key point of the film, and it's not something that we spend a lot of time dealing with. This is 
one of the only movies I think where we see two men who care for each other, but it's a serious film. Yeah, you know, they're going through something difficult. And and I think that's 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 a good point because as someone who my most popular video <laughs> on my channel is literally reinterpreting a one of Ghibli's films that is supposedly about these two friends as to interpret it through the angle of what if one of them did have emotions or feelings for the other or was attracted to the other. Mm. Um, that's such a good point about this. There is a tendency to do that. And to me, I feel like, especially in relation to this film, the only point where that's really important, other than, you know, maybe their hints or et cetera, is does it add something mm -hmm. to the film? Does it add something to the relationship? Does it recontextualize scenes? You know, if you want to interpret it that way. And to me with this film, I just, it's so clear what their relationship is, how intimate it is, how pl platonic it is, you know, and, and they make it explicit through other ways with like, you know, Andy's on off interest, uh, or maybe lack thereof, or Michael's brings up, um, you know, previous marriage, mm -hmm. and that, you know, they're both probably uh, heterosexual. But like, it's funny that you're like you brought up, Bo, it's, it's funny that it was such a point, because it's so it doesn't add anything to this film, their relationship is so clear. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean, what it is. And yeah, I, I just, I thought I, I should probably bring that up since uh, yeah. And if anyone was familiar with my channel, they'd be like, hmm, you have this opinion and yet <laughs> this video of yours, you know, someone's going to pull that up at some point, I'm sure. I think they jive well. I think uh, I, I actually really loved the fact that this movie showed a type of relationship that probably a lot of people don't even think is necessarily possible, which like you mentioned, Illicorist, when he's... Towards the end of the film, they have this tender moment together where Michael is telling Andy about about how he used to be married and how he thought that this was the life for him, but then he realized that he just had to be alone. Mm -hmm. I was married once. Are you kidding me? Mm -mm. You never told me that? I never told anybody that. Why didn't you tell me? <sighs> how long? A year and a half. Yeah? feel so bad about it. I really, I thought I wanted that, that life. I really, and I was, and I left, I left her, it was awful. I, and then, and then I thought, oh, I know I need to be alone. I'm convinced that's what I need to do. I need to be alone. Thought that for sure, and then I ended up here with you, and I knew like this is my spot. This is where I belong. And it sounds very much like you know, in other contexts, love at first sight kind of thing. But it's the way he describes it. You just realize that you can have a friend. You can't have like a best friend that you're this close with and it can kind of defy most definitions of what a relationship would be. And one of the things I, I loved about both characters in this film is that, I mean, obviously you do have, as you said, Bo, they, they clearly have a, an odd couple dynamic where Michael is more carefree, mm -hmm. more, more fast and loose, and Andy is more neurotic and more in desperate need of rigidity in his life. 
But both of them are pretty bad at social interactions. We've talked about how they're a little bit dysfunctional. They talk about how they hate small talk. Yeah. This is one thing I love, actually. A lot of movies, they try and kind of sell quirky, oddball characters kind of the same way that like a Big Bang Theory kind of like nerd face, sort of like, like, isn't it cute and charming how awkward this person is when people who have autism or Asperger's might watch it and they'd be like, oh, come on, it's not like you're romanticizing something that, you know, that people kind of deal with. But I, I loved when yeah. there's a moment partway through the film, about halfway mark, where they're in a hot tub and they're joined by the the owner of this hotel they're staying at. Hey, guys. Hi. Who's closed? Close yeah. at night. All right. Sorry. We're going we're right. to get, get out. Okay. Yeah, are you okay. drinking? Okay. Don't come over. That's against the rules. No, no. Okay. We're, oh, you don't want right. to. Okay. No, I'm no, getting no, no, in. No, no, no. What? It's three company. <laughs> And they both are just incredibly uncomfortable because, I mean, they're naked in the hot tub. Should have mentioned that. But uh, there's also just the idea of this. I, I was so absorbed in their dynamic that I think I felt the way they felt, which is like, ah, not another person. Get them out of here. We don't want another person, and which <laughs> I identify very well to that. When, when there's company over, I like having company over, but I'm always so relieved when social interactions end at the same time. So I can completely identify with this feeling of intrusion. But then... Uh, Michael leaves Andy and the hotel owner together and they have this little moment that seems like it might be tender and and intimate and personal. But Andy is so uncomfortable throughout the scene and it ends in a place where, again, I think in the hands of perhaps lesser writers, lesser performers could have come off as like, ah, look at that, like his his charm, his quirky strangeness ended up kind of being a selling point in this situation. But no, he's this guy legitimately can't function socially. She she tries to kind of kiss him and he sort of pulls his head over his face and just kind of like curls up in a ball. No, that's okay. That's all right. The the term is used almost completely negatively, but he's clearly kind of a man child. He's he's a grown up kid who doesn't know how to handle adult relationships. And so to that extent, I think that they serve as sort of a balm for each other where, again, they need each other. That's transcending relationship norms or friendship norms or anything like that. These are two people who need each other and they've needed each other and they've been there for each other. And so you kind of get this sense of symbiosis symbiosis between the two of them that comes through in a few special scenes i think yeah and i'm, I'm totally with you about the um you know I'm, I'm being a bit cynical here and talking about how like a lot of it is predictable but i did like the way they performed and i did like the way they bounced off of each other's except you know except for the scenes where i was like oh obviously this is the beat they're trying to hit here it wasn't it didn't feel as natural but yeah but i i was so yeah it's the same thing as you were like by the end when we get to those big moments I was I was there. I was with them. I was my you know heartstrings were being pulled in the right way because I just I like these characters. And part of it I'm sure was you know Duplass was rocking this mustache which was like really suited him, and it was like yeah that's that looks good. But uh, I I do want to talk real quick about that the jacuzzi scene yeah because I'm looking at my notes and I don't you know both you might have to correct me if I'm wrong because I want to counter Chris on one point didn't. Andy break down in tears at the end? Wasn't that the point of why he covered his face? Or or did I did I misinterpret? Usually I, I would I would have rewatched the film a couple more times, but I, I I thought it was one of the things where he just got really emotional and broke down in tears because 
emotionally he wasn't even with her there at that moment because hmm. he was sort of still dealing yeah. with michael's i don't know whether i noticed the the tears as much but i did hmm. to to chris's point i think that yeah one of the more refreshing aspects of the film is that their awkwardness results in actual pain as well as in humor and in when it does result in humor it's usually kind of a dark humor it's not we're not laughing at oh look at these characters with their funny little quirks it's like oh yeah this is to deal with what he's dealing with is not fun like it's not a funny little thing that you know it's to be as neurotic as he is causes legitimate pain in his life and i don't know if there were tears there because of what he's feeling or if he's just trying to shut out the overstimulus of the situation that he's in or both but i do think that yeah it serves really well as a moment to to illustrate that yeah that, i mean his life could be improved by these things being gone. You know, it's not just there for, for the jokes. And it's an interesting choice because I think we can't help but watch the film. Even if we're only marginally familiar with Ray Romano, I think we're automatically thinking, oh, he's a funny guy. You know, which is one of the things that makes his casting work well for the film, I think. Because if you're looking at it already thinking, oh, Ray Romano, he's, you know, he's going to crack some jokes. He's going to be funny. That's what he does. I mean, he his whole thing is kind of sad, pathetic funny, but it's still a funny guy. Mm -hmm. And so here to see that, you know, he still gets a chance to, to be funny, but there's more weight and consequence to it than there is, you know, in Everybody Loves Raymond or, or something else that we might see him in. Mm -hmm. and, and he had been going through that uh, transition, like, recently in his career anyways, with, like, The Big Sick, yeah. which uh, mm. he was in with, like, Nanjiani. And yeah, that's right. I think that that, that might have been, like, the, the transition point of where he was playing more of a side character in that one, but it was that dramedy where it had comedic moments, but it was really kind of a drama. And then this one where, yeah, you're right, it's, it's, it's full on. He's mm -hmm. really going for it here. Yeah. Yeah, to that point, I wanted to, to ask the both of you because I found myself in those moments where what we've already termed as you know, where it's becoming indie movie, the movie, and the little bit of cynicism that we're letting in here, I, I felt their awkwardness, which I think works on many levels and brings them together as characters. And we're able to, you know, understand their relationship and the relationship that the both of them have, you know, with the world or maybe against the world. Mm -hmm. But as they're going through all their improvised bits and their strings of jokes and everything, I felt, you know, there's a couple times where Michael laughs, but Andy never laughs. He never laughs at anything at, to the point that to me, it almost felt unnatural for even what they were trying to do. Like, I get the fact that he's a character who suffers from, you know, his various types of social anxiety and rigidity, as we might say. Mm -hmm. But I felt that I would have recognized him a bit more as a suffering yet relatable character if every once in a while in some of their conversations about like sand off and hoverboards and all these kind of funny little bits. How many wishes would a genie have to give you where one of those wishes would be sand off? What's sand off? Whenever you said sand off, mm -hmm. every grain of sand that was on your body fell off. 1,200 maybe? No. Ten. If they give me ten, I'm gonna do it. You can only think of nine wishes before you get to sand off. How many do you need? Okay, well, uh, your first one. All the cancer's gone. 
and a billion dollars, he's flying, whatever. Invisible. Invisible and then Santa, yeah. If he kind of chuckled and thought that mm. maybe he was a little bit funny or that something that Michael had said was a little bit funny, did either of you notice that? I mean, I laugh at everything. I think everything on the entire planet is funny, so I'm not the best judge. <laughs> but I did notice that his character was strangely the funnier of the two and also the more humorless of the two, which is which is odd. Mm-hmm. It almost made me think... I mean, to me, I sort of bought it as part of the overall package of this is a guy who doesn't know how humans are supposed to be to each other. And yeah, thinking back, they definitely go hard and fast on that. They definitely perhaps oversell just how awkward he is to the point of being perhaps an unrealistic character. It makes me think a little bit about uh, the ending, the very, very, very ending, which we won't get super into because we're not quite there yet but he has a conversation with a woman and a kid that uh, watching him interact made me very uncomfortable even at the end of just him Mm. kind of giving these little like stunted sort of one word responses and being like you in C? uh yeah yeah we're moving into C I'm going over there so thank you So you are in what apartment? I'm in F. F. <clears throat> yeah, that's up upstairs. Oh, right above us. Uh-huh. And when he when he's talking to the kids specifically, it's just you get the vibe that this is a guy who maybe doesn't even know that you're supposed to laugh at things, I guess. But again, that is noticeable, and I'm curious as to whether it was intentional or not. No, I I totally felt the exact thing that Bo was saying. But the only piece I read about this film, except for a review that was really bad but that's a different story but the only piece i read was someone who was they were like analyzing the film with putting andy that he was possibly on the spectrum and that's how he was being portrayed and to me that you know i'm, I'm not very knowledgeable about that but reading that and sort of looking at it from that angle it, it made a bit more sense especially when you consider for example at the end the way he's interacting with these strangers i think it went beyond just quirky characters and probably trying to go like the deeper sense of like that's what they were trying to portray and it was one of those awkward things where like they didn't really maybe portray that in any way and it sort of came off instead as if it was a choice mm-hmm. that ended up sort of limiting the characterization as opposed to maybe who this character was yeah and i'm making maybe a bigger deal of it than i felt it was watching the movie because i for me there are a few dark comedy laughs in the film there are a couple moments that i found amusing and you know at its heart it's you know, an uh, an endearing and tragic story about yeah, it's the very opposite of <laughs> of the inheritance. You know, we're dealing with yeah, we're dealing with the repercussions of cancer. But in that one, we've got characters who aren't really sympathetic and certainly aren't you know quote unquote good. And in this one, there are no characters who are unsympathetic. You know, all the char- there's no antagonist. All the characters mm-hmm. in in Paddleton are characters that we we can sympathize with. Yeah. But yeah, I did wonder if it was almost a choice that and maybe this is just projecting again off the idea that hey, it's it's Ray Romano that it almost felt like because he's going so serious that it's not hitting all those notes. And again, I I I was actually very impressed with Ray Romano's performance and impressed actually kind of makes me sound uh, pretentious and and patronizing. He he does a good job. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good performance. He's a he's a good character. But yeah, I don't know. I, just something about like to have an entire conversation about, you know, your how many wishes it takes you to get 
to a command where you can say sand off yeah. and sand just flies off. And to play that so deadpan that he never even finds it remotely amusing <laughs> was kind of jarring to me, you know, to watch that and think like, come on, like, I get that you're a, you know, an awkward and kind of a depressed guy, but, you know, surely you find something funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, actually, his character dynamic, I was really pleased with the way that the character's arcs worked in this movie and specifically how I feel like the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie, I think, bundled a lot of these kind of loose, kind of floppy, meandering pieces into a fairly cohesive package. Uh, if you guys don't mind, I, I could spend a while talking about the last 15 minutes. Is there anything that we should get out of the way before we get towards this kind of final moment? No, because I do want to talk about, yeah, the final chunk as well. Because a lot of what I want to talk about, especially about Andy and the stuff Bo's been talking about, I think talking about the ending will sort of bring up those points. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So um, as things kind of come to a head at the finale, Andy and Michael are, are prepping the pills for for Michael to take. And one one kind of important dynamic up to this point that I think is worth mentioning is how many times Andy tries to insert himself between the pills and Michael. There are pretty much throughout the entire film, he's dragging his feet through this process. First, he's surprised he wants to go on the road trip. He's like, really? It's six hours away. Are you sure? And then they get there and there's this hilarious exchange with a pharmacist about we should we should come back when Phil's here, you know, and there's. He's just every possible excuse to not have to do this. He, he tries to throw it out there. And as as things finally kind of wind down and he accepts that this is happening, he's helping Michael prepare these pills. And that's where you, you get that's where we get this kind of intimate conversation of them talking about how, what, how they felt when they first met each other. And there, there's a moment where they're choosing which components will go into this glass. And Michael forgoes the anti-anxiety. Yellow one is for anti-vomiting, because you can't, that's the thing, if you vomit this up, then, yeah. then it's all for nothing, and this is for anti-anxiety, because okay, if you take it and then... I don't want that, I want to be in my, in my head. I, all right. I don't need that, but I'll take I'll this. I'll keep this. I think that was an important distinction for two reasons, one of which was it, it factors into the emotions that occur as things build up to this conclusion. And also, it's once again a window into the differences between these two characters, which is that they both feel anxiety, but Michael almost kind of relishes it. He almost kind of, he accepted this part of the human condition that he is happy with. And as they, they wind up to take the pill, there's this, there's this moment, this fairly long shot that, for some reason, I got emotional watching, where they're deciding where they should do it. I never talked about where. Yeah, no, we didn't. I guess you could just, there's no instructions. No. Mm. So we could do it on the couch. I'm here. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right? That's our, that's our, That's our spot, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to do it on the couch. All right. Okay. If I was on the floor, I'd be closer to the door. If um, for when. Tell you why. And you get this really long shot. Not not crazy long. It's not Children of Men or anything. But you get this this fairly long take of them kind of going from the living room to the bedroom, and the hallways almost feel kind of claustrophobic because it's clearly being shot like in an actual apartment. 
And we sort of, we follow Andy as he goes to the kitchen and starts to mix up the drink. And it's just this very, very quiet. There's no music. It's just this, you can almost hear the quietness. And this is a scene where I think Romano could have thought like, all right, I'm going for the Oscar this year. Here we go. And he could have broken down and like punched the cupboard and just been like, why God, why? And like, I mean, I'm obviously hamming that up, but he could have, he could have really chewed the scenery with his, with this moment. But he just has a very, very quiet, very, very subdued cry to himself where it's almost not, it's almost unnoticeable apart from just his face flushing a bit and him dabbing his cheeks at the end. Yeah. That, that, are you, are you talking about while he's in the kitchen before he goes to the room? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that was a very subtle touch of where he just like sort of tears some like a paper towel or whatever and just sort of yeah. dabs his cheeks and then it it was it was little hints like that to me are are when you can tell like there's that moment where sort of the character goes away and it's you're just watching the person and yeah and yeah that that was that was such a great touch and and that that entire shot the, the entire way they did that that first part of the sequence was such a good call because it's unlike anything up to that point point. Mm-hmm. not that you know the rest of the film is shot in a pretty standard way conventional shot reverse shot you know they've they've been loose with the editing and sometimes holding it a bit longer for this one to go handheld and for it to go two minutes and 35 seconds on the dot i timed it because <laughs> of a point i'll be making in a moment <laughs> but it, it was no shot had gone that long had sort of shifted through all these setups of you know over the shoulder and then close up and then wide and then sort of go around with them and in this moment that you're talking about where it's so you need to be with them in every second like you need to be there mm-hmm. in every second there you shouldn't edit away or, or cut away at any point you need to be there yeah exactly and it's- i think it also compounded to make the scene a little bit suspenseful Mm -hmm. because, I mean, not only because we're expecting, you know, the emotional kick of what we know is about to happen, but we've seen Andy act in ways that are almost kind of rash and churlish or childish, you know, locking the pills in that little pink safe that he buys and (laughs) and causing a scene running around the table trying to hold on to the pills. And you almost kind of, because perhaps in part that we're not cutting, and we're building to this sort of crescendo. You're kind of wondering, like, what is he going to do? Is he is he really just going to bring the glass in and hand it to him? Like, is there going to be any or is he going to try and get in the way again? Is he going to try and stop it? And so I found myself proverbially on the edge of my seat thinking, you know, what what's going to happen now? Yeah. And I, I love it because there's until this moment, there has been so much chatter. There's so much dialogue you almost get the impression that neither of them is is entirely comfortable with silence as the film goes because they they talk so much about just random thoughts that enter their minds. So the fact that this scene is so long and so quiet, I think this was one of the rare moments in a movie for me where it actually made me contemplate the reality of death in a very serious way where as it's building up, I start to think on behalf of both characters. I'm thinking like, well, gosh, should I look out the window one more time? Should I have one more drink of non-poisoned water? Should I, like, is there anything I haven't done? Like, I'm just thinking of all the stuff you're never going to do again. No more reading a book. You're never going to ride a bike again. You're never going to see a tree. Like, just all these thoughts running through my head. And then also thinking from Andy's perspective, oh my gosh, like, this moment I was afraid it was coming. Like, I'm killing my friend. And it all goes entirely unspoken. But the way that they, like, their breath sounds heavy, the way that they sound, they they kind of, their their words get caught in their throats a little bit as they're preparing, they're, they're, they're nervous and Michael's kind of nervously chuckling when he asks if he wants to like lie on the bed for this moment. And 
it's yeah it, it's it's the most real i think that a an on-screen death has felt to me in a long time. Just the whole the buildup to it really sells that. And they capture the absurdity of it, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sort of tragic absurdity of like, well, the bed, the couch. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what is it what does it matter? <laughs> and but there's this feeling of it feels like not that these characters would ever be to a point where they could articulate it this way because they're so, you know, withdrawn in their way. But it feel you know, they're searching for some kind of poetry. They're searching for some kind of meaning at this important moment. And just that search, that almost panicked search for a little slip of meaning right at the end that we're observing, you know, we're not being pushed in it. We're just watching it unfold. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it makes for a very effective scene. Yeah. Yeah. And and it feels very real. Mm -hmm. Like real is the word I would use and you know that's often overused but the fact that like obviously it's it, it was on the day it was planned and they were blocking and so on but it doesn't feel like it was there you know they were blocking in terms of like their mise-en-scene where they were standing on the scene they were sitting awkwardly on the bed and then after he like psychs himself up to just take the the gulp he sort of leans back and then they're leaning and then the body language the way it's playing it felt real in the sense of like those big moments in your life they're awkward in the sense of like no one really cares how you're sitting or what you're doing. It's it's the emotions that are being, you know, passed through. And to sort of have that reversal, it's not quite a reversal of roles, but like up to that point, Michael had been very uh, relatively calm. You know, he, he knew what he wanted and he was very confident. And he was sort of the anchor for Andy up to that point. And for him to have that that breakdown, uh, which it, breakdown makes it sound like a lot more melodramatic. It was a real moment. It was It was a moment that... I was so shocked by what was happening on screen in the best way possible, where like in this film full of naturalistic acting, that was a moment that felt like absolutely real. Mm-hmm. And for Andy to have to sort of, for him to to look at Michael and say, no, I know it's going to be okay. I have a good feeling about this. Like I have a feel, you know, for him to be, for him to now finally be able to be that anchor at that moment, it was just so well done in a way that is, I found myself thinking about it constantly for the days after the film. It was just such a raw moment that I had to go back and watch it again and again and again, like multiple times. Yeah, I, I reacted very, very similarly. I, I mentioned earlier when we were discussing The Inheritance that both films feature a character who kind of slowly transforms over the course of the story. I think that moment when he says, he says, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And his friend, and you know, Michael, who, who opted to not take the anti-anxiety and who now is feeling the brunt of it, because I'm sure that, you know, knowing that you are about to die is probably the most anxious a person can possibly feel. And suddenly his carefree attitude goes out the door. Suddenly he's the neurotic one. He's the worried one. He's the one who needs some sense of stability. And then Andy, who has needed him as a crutch this entire film, he has to be the rock. He has to be the one to say it's going to be okay. It's supposed to be okay. Well, I, I think it's going to be okay. That's why you're taking the pill. I know. It's going to be all right. Yeah, but you right. don't know. No, I do. I do. I, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, Michael. Okay. You're okay, man. Okay. 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 You're doing good. Yeah, 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 I know, because I know, I got a feeling. I got a feeling, man. I got a feeling about this. Oh, I got it already. Give me a hand. Hey. The first time I watched it, I watched it twice. The first time I watched that movie, 
I thought, you know, he's he's just trying to make him feel better. He's he's kind of he, he you know he, he's just trying to help him calm his nerves. But the second time watching it, I was left with a very distinct impression that he believes what he is saying now. Mm-hmm. That he is saying, I have a feeling, and I just I just feel like everything's going to be okay. Because until this moment, he himself thought that everything was not going to be okay. So it's just he's in this moment. It 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 hits him at the perfect time to help his friend when he's basically forced into the position of being the person who feels like everything is going to be okay. Yeah. You wonder, you know, when was the last time that somebody relied on Andy? When was the last time that somebody turned to him and said, you know, help? And you think, you know, maybe never is almost the impression we get from the sort of person that he is and the way that he, the people interact with him. And so for him to have that moment it does kind of lead to growth, which you know is going to be manifest by him <laughs> making small talk uh, <laughs> soon after. You know, something that he wasn't really able to do. But it's a very subdued. What do we? How would I say? Growth re- reveal. That's a strange sentence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't get you don't get any moment where like, oh, he's a changed man now. Like, you know, after this, he's he's a new person. Yeah. But but you do see that what he's gone through and maybe even having that moment where he was the one who had to, you know, quote unquote, be strong has, has done something for him. You know, it's mm-hmm. the echoes of that moment are, are still sounding through his life after. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was saying like it, it, the change is very subtle. He's still the same character afterwards. He's just gone through, you know, to go back to the point that we were talking about in the inheritance that it's still the same character, but he's just gone through some changes. And, you know, when he's like caressing him on the head and or like sort of, but almost like patting him when he's trying to calm him down. And it's like these slightly rough caresses. They're just slightly too rough. It's not like the Hollywood sort of like, it's like that's the way that character would do that change where he would become the anchor, where it would be slightly awkward, slightly not the best thing, but exactly what Michael needs at this moment. And it was it was these small changes that I really, really, they, they won me over. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because y- you know that scene is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- you're wondering how they're going to handle it. Most, I don't know if we're just going to go ahead and call it a subgenre, but most most cancer movies are going to have that death scene. And, you know, they're the emotions and things that we expect to occur. And, you know, we're wondering whether we're going to get the speech. In the same way that we get his halftime speech, you know, that you're wondering. I mean, I think in a different movie, he's probably like giving it on the deathbed, you know, after, oh, his, after yeah. his friends, yeah, you know, after his friends died and everything. And you never got to hear my speech <laughs> and here it is, you know, and there's tears, yeah, and, yeah. which could maybe, I mean, it would still press emotional buttons, you know, with, with good performers. But this does something a little more. Yeah. The way that they pull off that scene with Michael going through the panic attack and then, you know, passing on, dying, and the naturalistic aspects of it, there's just this was an interesting anecdote that Ray Romano related about that scene and the way it was done that shows you just how improvised they were they were working. Mm. There was a scene. Uh, this is an interesting story. I mean, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's, you should still see the movie no matter what. Uh, um, at the end of the movie, he when he decides it's time, so he has to drink this thing, and and so we talked about the the death scene. But we didn't say what we were going to do. We just we just discussed. He'll I'll, I'll drink it. I'll lay on the bed, and 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 maybe you lay next to me, and then let's just do it. And that's it. We went. Okay. We started filming. So we're doing it, filming, boom, and it's and it's dramatic. And he 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 drinks it, and he's going through it all, boom, and I'm laying next to him, 
And all I, all I was told was, after he dies, lie down, take it all in, leave the room. So we're doing it. Boom. It's emotional. He dies. I lay down. I, I let it all hit me. I'm breathing like that. And he comes back to life. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. Mark Duplass just Mark sits Duplass, up. Like that. And in my head, I'm like, well, well that's an interesting choice. <laughs> but I want to stay in the moment. Right. So I'm like, I guess maybe he thinks the medicine you convulse or something. So I, uh, we relive it again. And boom, he dies. And, and I'm telling you, I mean, it's really emotional. And I lay back, boom, again. He comes <laughs> up again. And now I'm thinking, well, this is, we're going to cut this in editing, right? Yes, this is gotta a, get beat This fit. is a horror movie. This is how horror movies are. <laughs> yes. He says zombie. Yes. <laughs> and he lays down again, and finally I lay down, and the, the director was filming it, and I hear him whisper, Ray, leave the room, leave the room. So finally I just get up, I walk out, I leave the room. And we cut, and we come back in, and I, I try to, you know, tactfully talk about it, and he... He wasn't coming back to life. He was holding his breath to try to look dead, and I was taking too long to get out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, so that was Ray Romano talking about the scene on, on Conan O'Brien. And aside from being a funny story, you know, showing a little bit of, of just how improvised they had this and how they were choosing to film it. And I wonder, too, I mean, it, the way they make it sound, it, it may be that that third take is the one that we that we actually get in the film which is an interesting thing to think about that they've already you know gone through this part of this process twice because he's holding his breath there yeah but yeah i think it is a scene that you know we've many different styles of filmmaking have been covered just so far in the in this podcast mm -hmm. and styles of acting but this is one that you you only really reach this exact emotion i think by building a character and then letting them go because you can't plan it to this level without it coming across as artificial. Yeah. You have to let them kind of, you know, experience the the breathing and the panic and the padding of the head and all these things that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, as unchoreographed moments just you reacting as this person that you've built up as an actor. Right, right. And this is actually it's that it's that realness, it's the the authenticity of it that I think makes this ending so incredibly satisfying for me because I, I was, I was worried that one of three things would happen. I was worried that a, he would choose to not take the pill or he would decide, or he would take it and decide to be resuscitated. And now it's like a, a rush to get him to, to the hospital or something like that because he chooses life. I choose life. Damn it. Uh, I was worried that there would be something like that. I was also worried that there, you guys mentioned it, the, the possibility that he would have a full transition of character and come outside and be like, hey, how's it going? I'm a fully functional adult now. And I was also worried that there's that conversation they have early on. Well, not early on, but early on in the final <laughs> moments where as they're waiting for the pills to sort of bond and take effect, they are talking about Michael asks Andy, what kind of sign could I give you? Mm. If there is something after, what's something I could do to let you know I'm here? He says, well, now I'm going to think everything is you. He's like, well, no, that's why I'm saying we should pick something. Mm -hmm. And they never decide. But I was initially worried that there would be some moment where he goes outside and like yeah. the wind blows some leave and he's like, yep, there you are. You know, I was I was worried that you get this saccharine like yeah. perhaps death isn't the end looks into the camera, you know, <laughs> but I was so grateful. I was so, so grateful with the way that they went, which was. You get this transformation of character that's slowly happening with Andy and this this genuine feeling. And 
at the end, when he meets the mother and the son who are moving into Michael's old apartment, I don't, I don't know if you guys noticed this. Maybe it's super obvious and I'm being condescending by suggesting you might not have. I'm not sure. But the, the, the son, the little boy, to me, he appeared to also be on the spectrum. The kid was very, very – I mean, he could have just been shy. But the way the kid's body language was, not making eye contact, he, he looked like a kid who had social issues similar to Andy. And it made me think of the conversation that Andy and Michael have when they're when they're putting the pills together and stuff, where Michael says, when I got here and like I met you and stuff, I knew this was my spot. And then what Andy said was, when I, when I saw you, I didn't want you to get the place because you looked weird. Like you, you looked like uh, like you might have like hands and feet in your fridge or something like that. <laughs> and yeah. so I love the idea that there's this this transformation that's so subtle, it's virtually unspoken, which is that he notices this little kid is a little bit uncomfortable being around other people. And so he initiates contact with this kid and sort of warms up and says, hey, you know, you can play Paddleton, you know, and... Are you? Evan? That's all right. Tell him. Let's see. That's all right. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm I'm Andy. Kirsten, hi. Okay. So I guess you like games, then, Evan? Yeah. You ever play Paddleton? Paddleton? Yeah. No. No, because we made it up. Oh. Yeah. How do you play? Well, it's a it's like paddle ball, but you gotta imagine this whole wall here, right? You hit a ball against it. And you got to get it into a barrel that's over here. We put a barrel right there. And uh, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but it is. It's good. It's fun. Yeah. I'll show you one day. All right. Thank you so much. Just to make him, again, he makes small talk with this kid. And it just made me realize that he has, in a very subtle, not 100% way, has sort of slipped into the role that Michael had for him when he met Michael. And the... And this this little soft journey that Michael took him on and helped him transform into a slightly, slightly more functional human being. And in a, in a roundabout allegorical way, I guess, that's kind of the sign from beyond the grave in a manner of speaking, in that Michael, in a way, lives on through the change that he evoked in Andy. The, the, the transformation that he has undergone sort of ensures the again, very metaphorical living on that, that Michael might do after this is all over in that he has impacted Andy's life forever and he has changed the way that he treats people. And, and But again, he's not Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning. You know, he's not running down the streets telling kids to buy turkeys and stuff. He's just a little bit braver and a little bit more willing to have uncomfortable conversations at the expense of making somebody else hopefully a little bit more comfortable. And that, to me, really sold the journey of both characters and the impact that Michael had on Andy's life. So I I really appreciated the fact that they didn't go with some obvious saccharine, goofy sort of like, you know... I, I, I've already said I'm, I'm not super sensitive to cliches and tropes, but that's one that even I am like, oh, come on, roll my eyes. And I, w- I was glad that they stayed away from it, from that trodden territory. Right. And, and they undercut it as well. It's not just that they, they avoided it because when, when, they, when they make the joke of like, oh, well, now I'm going to think everything's you. Let's, let's pick something. And then as he's probably about to suggest something, the one hour uh, timer on his watch sort of clicks off. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that cutting off is, quote unquote, a bit cliche but it was a good way to go like 
yeah the, the way you you sort of broke it down and i think like a sign of how good the way you know not that i want to be super simplistic with good or bad but the way uh, <laughs> the ending sort of played out is that a lot of what we're doing here is we're reading into signs that the film sort of laid down the film doesn't really make any of that super clear it's all this very subtle character work and yeah and everything i think you said was on point Th this film almost to me it sort of fit in that what i'm going to call like the whiplash situation or even the coco situation those films where like it's a solid film and there's a lot of build-up and so on but what happens at the end of the film is so strong that you end up thinking the rest of the film is better than it is and that isn't a knock on the rest of the mm -hmm. film it's an okay film and like what was saying earlier like there's a lot of like setup and build up and you need to work with these characters to get to where it is but th that whole sequence is so strong that i couldn't help but feel like like i'm, pr I'm probably gonna watch the film one more time at least over the next uh few days even though like i have all these criticisms for the film but because of how it's sort of wrapped yeah. up and it was so good yeah. though i do have one major not major like one thing i do want to point out about the, the way the ending played out one of yeah. the um i don't want to call it subplots but sort of like build-ups that was happening was like clearly andy was struggling with expressing his emotions about how not okay he is with this you know and uh he he says that at one point when they're on the stairs that i can't be normal with this and so on yeah. but there's this idea that like it's just constant you know uh how much this is like sort of on his shoulders and we get that subtle moment of when he's in the kitchen towards the end in that one long shot where like we said he 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 pats his eyes but i i found it really weird how like this is a short film it's 89 minutes mm -hmm. right which is even shorter than what the usual like 90 minute thing yeah and i found it so weird how quickly they moved from that scene where um michael you know that that six minute seven minute sequence which is a long sequence for this film there there are literally <laughs> two minutes and 35 seconds is that one shot and then we get a couple of like quick shots uh of close-ups when they go back to the room and they're sitting next to each other which are probably to you know mask switching takes or whatever because then we move back to the long handheld shot and it's sort of for the rest of the sequence it's that it's that long handheld shots with a few of like cut-ins yeah close-ups or so on and the whole sequence comes down to about six minutes six or seven minutes right and then that includes the like 40 seconds at the end i'm getting super numbery but i'm <laughs> gonna make sense for a minute uh that includes the like 40 seconds where you know we heard romano talking about where he's on the bed and then he gets up and then sort of walks the door but then we literally only get two shots we get a shot of him at the door and then a quick shot of him on the couch crying with some music where the music starts to play in and then it transitions to the next day where he's already signing the form as they're moving the stuff out of the apartment and so on. And mm. that shot of, of Andy crying, finally like letting all this emotion out, especially because this is the first scene we get that's not a vignette where it's just, that's it, Michael's gone. This character who's been here the whole time. I just really wish as a viewer, as where I was emotionally, I was, you know, a mess. I just, I needed to sit with Andy a bit more you know yeah just have him on the couch without michael next to him just have him have have that seep in and as someone who's gone through you know our family's gone through a rough tragedy this year and mm. uh, seeing how people sort of it's it's not sudden mm -hmm. you know it comes in waves obviously and they weren't going to cover that but there is a moment of where you're just sitting there 
and reality is sinking in really slowly. And it's one of those moments where for all the benefits and praises that we, you know, all the benefits the improvisational style gave us in that sequence, this is the part where I wish they just did a bit more planning for what they needed for that sequence, which was afterwards, just having Andy sit there. And, and I brought up all these like minutes and seconds and so on because the film's over in, in five minutes and that's fine. We don't need to spend so much time after Michael passes away, but to get two shots, to get less than 30 seconds before the apartment is being emptied. It's like, no, I really wanted to sit with Andy for that moment. All of, we were talking about how subdued it was beforehand. He didn't want to break down in front of Michael, but now he's gone. Mm -hmm. And, And that's it. I just really wish, like, I don't know if it was a time constraint or whatever, but it was one of those things where I just really wish we just sat with him for a bit. Yeah. I I agree wholeheartedly with you, actually. I hadn't fully considered the reason why, but I did feel there's this slight stunted feeling between the moment he dies and he's, you know, lying on the bed and gets up between that moment and the movers moving out and cutting to him helping the kid out. Because, I mean, the whole movie is about the anticipation of and coping with grief and to not give the grief, which is at least half, if not more, of this whole process, uh, to give it such a short moment in the sun. I, I agree completely. I would have absolutely loved to have gotten at least a full minute or two of just Michael in the quiet again, but this time it's a different quiet. It's not anticipatory quiet. It's the quiet of letting the loneliness sink in yeah. and the realization that he's gone. I think, yeah, I think that could have really elevated it. And and just the, it stands out exactly because of a point Bo brought up earlier, which is in a lot of the improvisation and the quirky moments of where they're setting up and they're characterizing. Those quirky dialogue scenes earlier they go on for quite long. Like they'll hold on the quirky moments or whatever and they'll they'll want us to say, or when, when Andy's making people feel uncomfortable, they'll have those moments, you know, they'll just sit there and they'll be like, all right, we need to feel this this discomfort or, or, or whatever. It's weird then that when like now it came to this very real emotion, they would just cut away in a montage real quick. Yeah. It, it does feel like a, a choice to me because it's a scene where I think they easily could have taken some more time. And like we said, it's already a, a short film. So it's not as though they're feeling like the audience is, you know, not going to sit through another minute. Yeah. It sort of takes the wind out of you, I think, because you go through that scene, which is, as we've said, a very raw scene where we see him die after that panic attack. And we see that the way that Andy responds and then as he leaves the room, And it's so surprising in a way that it played out exactly as it did for us that I think they must have consciously decided to kind of pull the rug out from under you because, yeah, you don't get a chance to breathe. All of a sudden you're going, wow, and you're still kind of reeling from it. And then he's signing papers Mm -hmm. and then it's over. And I wonder if maybe the thinking was partially that it, it does leave more of an echo, I guess because you're pulled out so quickly Mm. and then the ending is shoved at you and then it's over that you are kind of, it took till I was scrubbing through again in preparation and going over my notes to even remember some of the, oh yeah, the hoverboard and the sand off and all that kind of stuff, because all you're left with is that last scene. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's really what stays with you. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe that was their way of driving that punch a little. Interesting. I don't know that the scene would have been very undercut because of how powerful it already is, but. That's an interesting take on it. Yeah, it is. And it's also interesting talking again about all those random bits of goofy, quirky dialogue that kind of build up these characters. Some of those scenes in them in themselves feel a bit saccharine and, and kind of indie film shortcuts. But at the same time, it's weird because the finale hits so hard as he lays there dying on the bed 
that it feels like those scenes, they were necessary to get to this point where we care about him this much. And at the same time, I would not value the film for those scenes specifically. It's like it's like necessary baggage, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, it, it, this was a movie that left me with a lot to think about. I, I I think about mortality all the time, not not quite on a morbid level, but. You know, it's you, you start to get older, you start to think about life and the impact we have on others and stuff. And I think that the contrast between these two films was really fascinating. I was just, you know, what a difference a single friend can make when you're at the end, you know, surrounded by vultures or having just one person who really cares about you. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And I think as well, I was fascinated by the way that The Inheritance is full of moral quandary. And here we have what is actually a hotly debated and very big moral issue of assisted suicide. And they choose not to spend any time there because that just isn't what the film is about. You know, there's a very quick conversation of, you know, choose life. You can't give up. And now I'm going to do this. And then the issue is just gone. Then it's more about the fact that he has to die. And how are they going to deal with that? rather than any kind of debate over whether that was the right way to go about it or whether there's a morality attached to these issues, which is, I I think, a fairly bold choice, but a a good one for what they're trying to do with this movie, because this movie, I don't think, has room for an argument about the ethics of, uh, you know, of something like that. Yeah, I did. I do like that um, there was opposition to it, but it wasn't necessarily a moral or ethical obligation so much as it was Andy just not being ready to let go. You know, because you have all these all these moments of him pushing back and dragging his feet through the process, and it's not so much that he's thinking that the act itself is is evil or wrong, just that he doesn't want to say goodbye. Well, um, speaking of saying goodbye, I, I think uh, <laughs> we'll see how this is on the editing room floor, but we're hitting about for me two and a half hours plus. So we should probably oh, like, start to start to wrap up here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've kind of implied over the course of the conversation who might be the crowd for this kind of movie. But Licorice, you're our, you're our special guest. So let's ask you first. Who do you think this movie's meant for? Who do you think would enjoy this movie? I I, th- I think the film has a much wider demographic of folks who would enjoy it. Like I, I actually spoke to two sisters today, both of my sisters, and I told them that, hey, I think this is a film you guys would enjoy. Mainly because it's such a it's weird to say a pleasant movie but like you were saying chris earlier like the characters can be pleasant to hang out with even in their uncomfortable moments you know Mm -hmm. and it's a real and i know i've overused the word real but it feels real and i think that's just it's got a really wide demographic so if you if if you enjoy short films that are also really really not short films but films that are short (laughs) that also really really could affect Mm -hmm. you in a way that would have you thinking about that film for a long time then i'd highly recommend this yeah 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 i agree and there's going to be a lot that you already know if you've listened to this whole podcast without watching it right (laughs) but yeah it's a film that i would say that if you're kind of turned off by the indie movement i would say it's still worth sticking sticking through because it has a it has a payoff and if you're already in for the indie movement well enjoy yourself then this is it's right up your street (laughs) so yeah knock yourself out (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm I'm feeling pretty good. Hey, Licorice, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for suggesting The Inheritance, which was unlike anything I've seen before. So that was a really awesome, fresh experience for me. Yeah. And thank you guys for having me. I was having, it was such a great conversation. Yeah. yeah. And getting a chance to talk about The Inheritance and, and watch Paddleton, which frankly, I, like it went completely under my radar. I, I didn't even know the film existed. Mm-hmm. And it's a film I'm going to be 
thinking about for a long time, I think. Terrific. And the joys of this podcast, right, to to take a Japanese New Wave film and compare it to a, a quasi-mumblecore <laughs> <laughs> streaming yeah. original from 2019. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Never would have happened anywhere else but here. Yeah. So where can listeners find you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, well, I'd rather if they didn't know, you know, I'd like to stay private. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> they, they could find me on, on, uh, on YouTube. <laughs> Just uh, if you look up Elicorish, which is E-L-I-Q-U-O-R-I-C-E. So it's basically E and then the word Elicorish. And I make videos that are too long on there, but people <laughs> seem to like discussing films. So yeah, the, and also on Twitter, obviously. He, he's being modest. There's good stuff there. That's why we yeah. tapped him in the first place. They go down smooth. Yeah. And then Twitter under the same handle, right? Yeah, exactly. Same handle. Great. Elicorish. Yeah. Check them out. It's a great channel. Uh, this is, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And yeah, thanks, Chris, I guess. Yeah, well, pleasure as always, Bo. Yeah, and the hypochondriac in me, I'm going to go get my moles checked on Monday probably just to, <laughs> you watch you watch two cancer movies in a row, you start to think. Yeah. So I'm going to go take inventory. Yeah. <laughs>